You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to Video Monsters, where we take movies seriously, just not ourselves. I'm Nathan. And I'm Eric. And staying on brand with being, you know, like a month behind when we said we're going to do things, now that August is almost over, we are finally getting around to covering our 70s Decades episode. We're fashionably late. We are, we're at the point where we probably need to change our intro with the uh, weekly podcast, eh, mostly weekly. We, we might need to change that to monthly, eh, mostly monthly. Sometimes more, sometimes mostly less. <laughs> Feels that way, man. I, I think that what's going to happen, though, is that once we get over this little hump that we've been in, we're just going to end up like releasing three episodes a week because we're just going to have to podcast like every day to catch up on all that we missed. <laughs> There's some very tantric podcasting going on. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that that hope is going to last for a while, though, because I'm about, I am not about to have, uh, my wife is about to have kid number two. Not like literally this very second, but, you know. In, in You're a, in the delivery room right now. <laughs> I kind of want to podcast during the birth. That would be something special. We can do a, uh, a, a unique one-off episode where we talk about It's Alive. Which we're while gonna giving, talk about tonight. Yes. <clears throat> oh gosh, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah. So even though the uh, the episodes have already been slowed down a lot more than we expected and or wanted them to be, that's probably also going to slow down a little bit further for the next few months. I I hate saying that, but uh, until things can settle out a little bit, um. Episodes are going to be a little bit more delayed. We do have some good things coming up. We we have uh, the episodes that we've got, hopefully, I hope, lined up for our Halloween pre-coverage. I, it should be a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, again, with the way things have been going, we'll be lucky to get our Halloween episodes out before Christmas. <laughs> Let's, uh, hey, you know what? Let's just do a, we could do a, a Halloween for Christmas Thing. that would be fun by me yeah just like the uh, uh that boxcar racer song you know <laughs> we were just talking about well of we'll halloween and christmas racer. yeah it's a deep cut nathan i love it <laughs> is it, is it a deep cut? <laughs> boxcar racer that's the the mark coppice and travis barker spinoff right yes the one that that's did, which is now just blink 182 <laughs> yeah it's blink 182 minus the two I guess not. A, not a, minus Tom Tom DeLong. DeLong Even though on uh, some of the songs, didn't he also join? It doesn't matter. Is this. He, I can't. Oh wait, no. Maybe he is. I can't remember. If, uh, or maybe I don't know. There's so many different variations of Blink 182. I used to be obsessed with Blink 182 in high school too. So, well, yeah. This this is not a uh, pop punk music podcast. This is a movie podcast. Man, That's I would do a pop punk podcast though. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I love pop music. I mean, that's the music that is undoubtedly playing in uh, in in our hypothetical movie store. You know, like you walk into Video Monsters, <laughs> and you it's like an early two thousands, <laughs> early two thousands mixed with early seventies. So you know, you, you get a little it's, bit of rancid going straight into early yeah, early two thousands. That is nostalgic for you know a bygone era that we didn't actually live in. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, man. I totally lived through the sixties vicariously through other people's memories anywho <clears throat> movies we are talking about the 70s and i've wanted to talk about the 70s since we recorded our 60s episode we have a lot to get through tonight i i don't really think we're going to get through all of it um so uh, that's okay yeah I, I feel like i'm so glad that we've we've made it to the 70s though because this is the first decade where i actually feel pretty comfortable there's still so many movies that I want to see from this decade, of course, but this is the first one where I'm like, where I wasn't panicking about like not watching everything that I wanted to see because I've already seen quite a number of movies from the seventies. Like I feel like I can speak somewhat intelligently on this decade, even without watching a whole lot of stuff. And ironically, I did end up watching more for this decade than I ended up being able to watch for hardly for most of the previous decades that we've done. But yeah, and I'm a little bit backwards on that. Like the '70s is the first month that. So all of the um, all of the other decades episodes that we've done so far. Granted, I got sometimes a lot of movies watched, uh, not always as much as I wanted to. But so far, I've kind of felt like each of the decades there have been a few like iconic movies. You know, like if yeah. I had only watched four or five movies as long as they were certain movies i would have been okay to be like okay this is the feel of the set or uh, of each of these respective decades but by the time that we got to the end even though there are still a lot of movies from each decade that i've not yet seen and we could very easily turn this theme into just the ongoing theme of the podcast and still never run out of um of episodes I, by the time we got to the end, I felt like, okay, I've watched enough from whatever decade. I'm ready to move on. You know, even the 60s, and I watched a ton of 60s, and there's still way too many movies that I didn't have a chance to get to. I, I felt like I was at a good stopping point to be like, okay, let's put a pin in the 60s. I'm good there. Let's start moving into the 70s. Mm-hmm. The 70s is the first month that I'm like, I have not even scratched the surface of the movies that I need to see. Like I, mm-hmm. I literally have a stack of about 15 movies from the seventies staring at me. Like, why haven't you watched us yet? <laughs> and, and, and I feel bad for I, them. Cause it's like, guys, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I know some of you, you know that I love some of you, but I get, uh, I, I can't I, always make time to watch uh Fulci zombie. Even though I, I should I have, always be making time to watch <laughs> Fulci Zombie. I hear you. I definitely, the my uh, short list that I made of movies that I was like, okay, these are the ones that I really want to try and prioritize was much longer for the 70s than for most of the other decades. But I also, I was like, it, I wasn't like panicking about it as much if I don't get around to them. I'm like, okay, well, I'll eventually get around to those. I've already seen, like, I think before I started this, I'd already seen like 60 movies from the 70s. So, like, I mean, a pretty good, pretty good number there. Sure. And then I, and then I watched twelve, and a lot of them ended up being rewatches because I was like, you know, 
I need to like for, well, first of all, I ended up rewatching the Star Star Wars because my kids <laughs> wanted to watch it for the first time, and so because those are great movies. Lives. Yes, um, and then there were a few others that I rewatched specifically because I watched other movies that reminded me of them, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I felt a lot more relaxed about this one, where it was like I'm comfortable where I'm at. Um, again, still like wish that I got to watch a little bit more, but um, you know. It's nice to always have something to go back to later. Yeah. And again, I still have so many that I need to watch. Uh, I only, and you're going to say only, but yes, I only got through 35 movies for the seventies. And of those 35, I had, uh, how many have I had seen? I had seen one, two, three, Four, five, six, seven and a half, eight and a half. What is that? Mean? You know, I caught part of it, but I hadn't seen it in its entirety. Uh, 10, 11, 12 and a half. So that has us at like, you're you know, counting. I just have to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, vamp so, here for a minute. To, uh, to no, I'm, I'm, I'm done counting now. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I had seen about 14 of those 35. So more than half oh, of wow. what I watched were uh, first time watches. But even so, even with watching 20 movies that I had never seen before, there's still so many on my list. Like we're, we're going to get to this wow. one in a few minutes, but I still haven't seen Wicker Man. And yeah. uh, I just watched this, this one for the first time. And I... I hate to admit it, but also not as embarrassed to admit I still haven't seen any of the Jaws sequels. And I know they're not Jaws, so it's fine. But it's also (laughs) like, you know, for Jaws to be a perfect movie, I know that these aren't going to live up to it. But there's still that part of me that's like, I I need to at least see them uh, to to just add that to my experience. I, I've I not seen nearly enough kung fu movies. I've not seen nearly enough black exploitation movies. Oh, there are still me, yeah. so many that I need to see. It's just. <sighs> but you know what, Nathan? Of those fourteen or so movies that you had seen from the seventies, none of them were The Godfather, and the you what? finally got seeing The Godfather. <laughs> are you going to keep doing this even now that you've watched it? <laughs> for the for the audience at home. There were so many times throughout the month where I was like, have you watched The Godfather yet? And then I kept responding to you only in like Godfather gifts for a while. <laughs> you me, and you were just like completely ignoring every single thing that I said about The Godfather. And for a minute, I was genuinely convinced that you were not going to watch The Godfather <laughs> for this episode. And I was going to be very upset with you. My favorites were when I started talking about it as if I had seen it but just blatantly talking about not that movie. <laughs> what was it? Was it, uh, you, we were talking about Bugsy. <laughs> Is it this one? I, I don't know. At, at one point I might've <laughs> sent you like a picture of uh, Sylvester Stallone from, uh, from Oscar. Did you ever see that one? <laughs> I've never seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's the, like, the poster has him like hanging from the clock yes. tower. Like he's, like that doesn't have anything to do with anything in the movie. It's <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. Uh, but it does have uh, um, what's his name? It has Tim Curry as a dialect expert, 
and he says something about having dangling participles and a dude checks his crotch like where so oh, you know that's that that's sounds, a joke that stuck with me since i was a kid that sounds like it would be so horrible but also not bad because it's, <laughs> it's <Kirk. laughs> it th- there is a heartwarming charm about oscar um it's not good <clears throat> <laughs> just want to be just want to be clear here it's not good but it, it's it's not bad like i hope it's at least better than rhinestone have you ever seen rhinestone i have the not seen rhinestone alone is coached by dolly parton to become a country singer and sylvester stallone tries to sing country songs and it is just as incredibly horrible as that sounds <laughs> no but it has our lady of the holler so anything that has dolly cannot be bad Oh, I mean, that's, that is absolutely true. However, uh, you need to listen to Sylvester Stallone singing country music because, wow. <laughs> I, it I is quite it. an experience. So rather than talking about the movies that we haven't seen, uh, let's start <laughs> talking about the movies that we have seen. And if anyone out there, uh, <clears throat> if you've caught some of our previous Decades episodes, you know what you're in for. And if you've not listened to any of our Decades episodes and you've only listened to our singular reviews, this episode is is not going to be like that. It's going to be different. We are not covering a single movie, although there are a few single movies that we're going to end up spending way more time than we mean to on. There's one in particular that I, I almost want to start with, but I don't want to start with it because I want to save that one up. Oh. yeah so uh we're not just going to be talking about single movies we're not going to be talking about every movie from the decade obviously we're not going to be talking about the best or the like must sees we watched a lot of movies and we're going to be talking more about just some of the general themes that we picked up from the movies from that decade we are going to use certain movies as examples um mm-hmm. but but yeah this is going to be more like if you just go out for a beer with your friends and be like man you know what i love the movies from the 70s like yeah that is what this conversation is and this is our non-comprehensive view of the decade based on the small sample size of movies that we picked up on over the past month and a half or so In- Exactly. This, uh, con- continuing on with that example of like going out and getting a beer and talking about movies, this is the film school education that you would get from a really smart drunk person where like like everything that's said is like, oh, that's really interesting. But just a dash of, wait, that's not right, is it? So that's... <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the yeah listening audience to go in and be like, do these guys know what the f- they're talking about? Like, what? I mean, None of what they're saying is actual. It is actual to us. <clears throat> Hopefully they at least have a good time listening to us. Exactly. All right. So the 70s. The, so the, the biggest theme and pretty much everything that we're going to be talking about is going to be uh, sort of covered by the umbrella of things are a bit more gritty and realistic in the seventies. Yeah. The seventies this, the is kind of like the decade of the gritty Hollywood, the gritty reboot of just Hollywood in general. <laughs> like, you know how everybody loves to like, I think just a few weeks ago they announced there's going to be like this gritty reboot of the fresh Prince of Bel Air. And it's like, that's stupid. Um, but the seventies is basically, I don't know. Like, 
I, I, I mean, could I'm get into a well. I could get into a gritty reboot of Fresh Prince in terms of like you know some of the very special episodes of Fresh Prince. Like I, I could see well, that. Yeah, they definitely have some some uh, PSA kind of stuff going on where it's like there's some genuine emotion and actually trying to tackle real issues. So I mean. I mean, listen, I think that that's just like kind of a very reactionary thing. I didn't mean that it will absolutely be stupid, but I think that's just like generally how a lot of people immediately react when they hear that. Like, what? Why? Um, I, I think it's more of one of those things where it's just like, why call it Fresh Prince? Like, you could very yeah, easily I mean, tell a gritty version of essentially the same story of, uh, you know, a, a young black man having to leave the ghetto to go into a more upscale neighborhood and some of the conflicts that arise. Like, yeah, that's, that's a Mm. great story. That's also been told a lot of times. So it doesn't need to be fresh Prince, especially since fresh Prince. Yeah. But like fresh Prince is, uh, Oh God, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Um, Will Smith. Yes. Will Smith. I, I was thinking a different person that is not Will Smith. Like Fresh Prince is Will Smith, and so it's just I, this is eh. this is essentially what our culture has become now. It's like anytime anybody wants to make anything, it's like we have to do it under the guise of some other franchise. It's like, hey, I want to remake Taxi Driver, so I'm going to make a movie about the Joker that's actually just a remake <laughs> of Taxi Driver. Oh my god! Anyway, I don't want to get into Joker stuff right now, but well, uh, but but we are going to because we're going to be talking about remakes and we'll, we'll, we're going to be talking about Taxi Driver. So oh, for sure. <clears throat> uh, but anyway, the '70s feels like the gritty reboot version of everything going on in the '60s. Kind of as a reaction to the '60s decade as a whole, and also just the fact that the '70s is really the first full decade where filmmakers have an R rating to work with. Um, you was know, it the after 70s? it was um, seventies is the first full decade. MPAA was established in like the mid sixties or early to mid sixties. Okay, it was like sixty three to sixty five somewhere. Um, so it's the first full decade of BR rating, and uh, it's it's really fascinating because I feel like ninety percent of like the big movies from the seventies that we think of, like if you go onto Letterbox and look up the most popular movies of the seventies, like 90% of them are R rated gritty, very cynical, pessimistic kind of movies. Um, and and one, something that goes along with that in terms of, yeah, there's a full decade where we have the R rating that we don't have PG 13 yet. So there's a lot of much more mature movies, uh, that were only rated PG that you're like, wait, what? that doesn't seem right. Like, uh, I, I need to double check this, but I'm pretty sure that <clears throat> mash is currently rated PG, but when it came out, I think that it had an NC 17 rating. Uh, um, at that time, because you know, I, I think there's like maybe, I, I think maybe there's only two instances of, fuck, but then there's also uh, a couple of Just some nudity. In there, it, there, yeah. But like not, not excessive. But anyways, although to be um, fair, like there are definitely PG movies that have nudity in them. From, oh yeah, from you the- you can get butts in PG, and you can get one non-sexual f- in uh, in a PG thirteen movie. Um, or or this is the part that is always so uh, so fascinating to me. You can have more. I'm giving myself more to edit. You can have more than one f- 
fuck in a PG-13 movie, again, as long as it's non-sexual, and if they are in quick succession. So, like, if uh, if there's someone, like, flying a fighter jet, and their engine explodes, and they go, fuck, fuck, like, that can still be uh-huh. in, a, uh, in a PG-13 movie, because it's, like, counted as one instance. That's interesting. I'm trying to think of movies. I know that there are a few movies that have mul- that have multiple uses of the word fuck that are PG-13, but I can't think of any at the moment. Anyway, not, not that that matters. 70s. <laughs> but but <laughs> it, it does matter because sure, of the yeah. fact that as there is that more gritty realism and because PG-13 does not yet exist, there's a huge gap between is this enough to warrant an R rating or not. And so there are some things that are PG that I think are probably pushing the bounds because they don't quite hit R. And then there's probably a lot of things that once they hit R, they're just like, all right, cool. We're at R rating anyways. Let's just go ahead and do as much as we can. Right. Invasion of the body snatchers. That's one that, that is PG that blows my mind because there is one scene of incredibly graphic violence where a face gets bashed in. And then there's a lot, there's like a, Pretty, yeah, but not a real face. The, a, I mean, a it's not a real person face, face, but still, it's pretty graphic. And also, there is a uh, lengthy-ish scene toward the end of uh, nudity. Uh, so yeah, anyway, that's. But again, of. it's non-sexual, and it's a pod person. So like, maybe they said <laughs> okay. it's not real nudity. It's just like looking at a flower without their stems. You know, if if we're gonna keep building off of our uh, Batman episode, <laughs> oh lord, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, even the PG movies in the seventies were uh, were pretty harsh. Yeah, um, job, PG movie. Man, we uh, we we've already started like eight different uh, directions <laughs> that we could be going. We did. Let's let's start with one. Let's find one thing that we want to focus on and start heading down that path. Again, pretty much everything is going to be under that more gritty, realistic nature. So, uh, well, it, let's. Do, do you have a preference of where you want to start? Let's maybe maybe we should talk kind of broad about why we think it's so gritty and why we think that there is such a kind of pessimistic attitude in these movies. It kind of started in the, in the late sixties, I think, but then the seventies as a whole feels very much like a reaction to just the, I mean, all of the chaos of the late sixties, the Vietnam war and the civil rights movement. And it feels like in the seventies in the aftermath of all of that, it's well, in, and then even with the Vietnam War, wasn't even really over in the beginning of the seventies. Um, but like, it just feels like everyone is just so distraught. I feel like like there's nobody trusts the government anymore. People are being assassinated. Uh, I mean, it's just it is a pretty dark time, and I think that the art as a whole, like the culture of movies, is a reflection of that. Oh, yeah. Like movies absolutely reflect the society uh, at, at the time. And that's one of the things that man, I've really loved about going back through and some of the movies that I had seen before or just movies that I had never seen before actually watching them in a concentrated. I am watching this decade movies that mm-hmm. I had seen before come across different uh, and but I'll use Invasion of the Body Snatchers as an example of that in just a second. Um <clears throat> 
So I think that a lot of it is just the commentary of of the time, you know, how uh, like art imitates life uh, in terms of being able to show here's what's happening. Here is maybe a, a more artistic way to be able to confront some of the things that people were seeing at the time. But I think that part of it is also have you ever had just like a really, really, really terrible day? And someone tries to cheer you up by like telling you a joke or doing something nice. And you're like, I'm too angry to enjoy something pleasant right now. I don't want a fun day. You know, like I I just Mm -hmm. want to kind of stew a little bit and everything sucks. And, you know, it's not that hard to imagine as we are currently living in a pandemic with a wild amount of uh, civil and social unrest and rampant societal racism. And, you yeah, know, basically I mean, we're living through the late sixties again. Uh, absolutely. I think the it's, it's one of those things where it feels like a lot of the filmmakers of the era are trying to like purge their demons in a way. It's like, they're just so angry at the world. I mean, cause this is the decade too, where we have, so many younger kind of more rebellious filmmakers coming in. This is like the Hollywood new wave era where you get guys like Scorsese and Spielberg and um, Coppola and um, like Bogdanovich who come in and they're these young guys who are given, you know, start off with like some of these like lower budgeted independent movies that kind of make a splash. And then they get to go wild on a studio dime with some, with certain movies and like, I think just the fact that they are young and just very kind of disillusioned by the world that they're growing up in and the way that they kind of have nostalgia for their youth. I don't know. I don't know. It feels like the act of movie making is a form of therapy for them. Like they're just throwing all of their frustrations out on this canvas. Um, Yeah. And absolutely i definitely think that a lot of it is exactly that it's almost like it's almost like hollywood is going through its teen angst years even though yeah it's very much not a a teen at the time um yeah like looking back at the movies that i watched i did not watch many happy movies and okay not counting disney's robin hood because that is just a a gem of all gems and one of the best movies that has ever been made and i (laughs) i love that movie so deeply and dearly like anytime anyone starts to ask what's your favorite disney i don't even let them finish it's just robin hood it is disney robin hood full stop like i just Man, i really wish i'd watch this now because i <sighs> Dude, didn't realize you loved it so much i would have loved to have you, discussed this with you i've never seen it you, yeah you got like, roger miller singing the the songs doing the ballads throughout um mm-hmm. you you've got uh phil harris doing the voice of um of little john he was the voice of blue in jungle book and also just really quick aside uh i've decided that phil harris is the cartoon version of john wayne (laughs) okay (laughs) like seriously go back and watch jungle book and when he refers to Mowgli as little britches tell me that you don't hear john wayne saying well all right partner all right little britches yeah it's (laughs) He he is absolutely the cartoon version, but I, I yeah love Disney's Robin Hood. Uh, so not counting that one because it is a cartoon kids movie, but even counting that because it's a cartoon kids movie where for you know a span of about thirty seconds you think that Robin Hood is dead. Like mm-hmm. I when I was watching this and I've seen it a few times with my son already, but the first time that I watched it with him, I was like. I, I don't know how he's going to respond to this, but he was too young. So it didn't matter. 
but rewatching it again this time, it's like he understands a little bit more about things. And like when we're reading through books, if there's only part of an image on the page, like he looks around the book trying to find the rest of the image. Like he understands that there's other things going on. And so in the scene where you think that Robin Hood is dead, like I, I always have to try to make it super happy so that he doesn't get freaked out thinking that that this little cartoon fox is dead. But then That's I have to balance too, that out that with not making it seem like, yay, it's fun that he was shot in the river with arrows. Oh, okay. It's interesting too, to think about like the fact that even the Disney movies are about people who are fighting back against corrupt governments yep. who are basically like, you know, these these young upstart socialists who are trying to create a, who's trying to start a revolution to a certain extent. Uh, there, yep. there are so many in this decade that are about rebels or people who kind of exist on the fringes of society. Um, so yeah, I, I like that even with the Disney movies, I didn't even think about that with, with Robin Hood. It's like, yeah, we're going to make a movie about, you know, this guy who who's robbing from the rich, is literally robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. And so, and yeah, so like again aside from that one um probably like the quote-unquote happiest movie that i saw was logan's run which is a dystopian future where people think that they are living in a utopia but they die at the age of 30 or they are killed at the age of 30 because otherwise it's putting too much of a tax on uh on the world and like Otherwise, they get old and become Republicans. Exactly. And it is incredibly, (laughs) like, it is a very, very, very dark theme, but because it's presented in this sort of, like, futuristic utopia sort of way, it it seems like a brighter movie than it is, Um, and and it feels out of place. Like, I really enjoy Logan's Run. I think that there's a ton of stuff about it that is a great movie. There's, like every other movie that we've talked about, I want us to do a full review of it, uh, tying it into Disney's Robin Hood. Peter Ustinov, who does the voice of um, uh, of Prince John and King Richard, also has a bit part in Logan's Run. Um, it, like, it's a great movie. I really enjoy it. There's a lot to discuss. It feels out of place. It feels like a 50s movie. It doesn't feel like an homage to a 50s movie. It feels like a 50s movie that was made in the 70s and... And as much as I enjoyed it, watching it within the context of everything else that I watched and as realistic as some of these other movies were and other sci-fi movies like Close Encounters and Star Wars, Logan's run feels off. It, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it fits, you know? Interesting. I, I really need to catch that one too. But yeah, I'm sitting here looking through the movies that I've watched and I'm trying to think like the only... Like, I think the happiest movie, I mean, the happiest movie that I watched this time around was definitely the Muppet movie. But even that. Oh, like, yeah. The Muppet movie. How could I possibly forget that? At times. Um, Muppet movie maybe Grease to a certain extent. Man, we can get into the darkness of both of those in the terms that the Muppet I, movie, there's a lot of existentialism and a lot of just what even is life and, you know. No, for sure. And also, like, the fact that there's this guy who's, like, chasing Kermit around um, who is trying to get him to be a spokesperson for, for like, his frog leg restaurant where he sells frog legs or whatever. Um, I, I love so, the Muppet movie. 
I watched it for the first time this time around, and I was really... I never liked the Muppets as a kid, but now as an adult, I can appreciate all of like the fun meta stuff in it. And, man, those movies... And I've never really watched the show too much, but like they're just so smart, and yep. I'm so my kids love them so much. I watched this one with the boys, and they just had a great time with it. Um, well, because like there are jokes for adults, like they kids don't understand. Um, I, I assume yeah, most kids aren't going to st- understand the running joke of "I'm lost." Have you tried Harry Krishna? But as an yeah, adult, the Harry <laughs> bizarre running joke <laughs> oh my god it's so hilarious they don't look uh, like presbyterians to me mayhem. yes, yes. <laughs> oh man also i uh said that i is pursuing uh kermit I, I have to mention it's charles durning who is just one of the best like character actors of the 70s he's in the sting and dog day afternoon and oh my god i love charles durning so much he makes a very good Republican. Um, the, uh, where was I even going with some of that? Just, yeah, so even the like happy movies, in, unless they are children's movies, feel off. And even the children's movies, like they they start. Okay, so the Muppet movie is pure Willy magic, Wonka. like Willy Wonka. It's terrifying. Uh, so the Muppet movie is pure magic. And I absolutely adore it. And it, God, how could I possibly have forgotten that? As I was scrolling through, I just overlooked it. I I love that movie more than I can possibly imagine. And if you watch it with a kid, it's breaking down the realism of movies because it starts yeah. with them sitting in a theater watching the movie about the making of that movie. And yeah, it's so so fun. And there's even like the my favorite bit is like the way that uh, every time they like when they first run into Electric Mayhem, they're like, "Oh, where did you come from?" And they start to explain where they came from, and they're like, "You know what? We're not going to make the audience sit through this again. Here, here's the script. Just read the script." Yeah. And then the way that that pays off at the end, where they just like show up at the very end, and they're like, "What? Well, how did you find us?" And like, it's right here in the script. Like, and it's the <laughs> It's, it's just so brilliant and hilarious. Oh, God, and, I love it so much. And again, like trying to understand, wait a second, if this is the story of how they got to Hollywood to make the movie about <laughs> how they got to Hollywood to make the movie, how did Electric Mayhem actually know where they were? You know, like... The paradox of it is just so, it, so funny. Exactly. So even in one of the happiest movies ever, there's still that breaking down of the magic of movies to be like, guess what, kid? Movies aren't real. This is all fake. Uh, grow up and deal with it. And like that kind of what the 70s feels like. It really, it really does. To a, to a certain extent, there are a few. There's There's one 70s movie in particular that I watched that is absolutely trying to be a very gritty, realistic movie, but 100% lives in a fantasy land. Uh, that movie is Death Wish. And I don't know if you're ready to get into that. But, yeah, um, let's, Wish. let's dive into Death Wish because it is one of the most 70s of possible 70s movies. And I I, I got some thoughts. So, yeah. What, what are some of your thoughts on Death Wish, keeping in mind that we cannot do a full <laughs> review on it? So, what, uh, before we even dive into it, 
uh, vigilantism is absolutely a theme from the 70s. And once we get done talking about some massive shortcomings of Death Wish, we're going to mention a few really, really, really good examples of how to make a vigilante movie that doesn't try to... Death Wish just feels off. What, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts of Death Wish? I think that the problem with Death Wish is that I think that the people who made the movie don't really know what kind of story they were wanting to tell or what kind of tone they were going for because it, Charles Bronson said that this is a movie that does not glorify violence. Like he's like, basically he's like, yeah, this is a movie that is basically saying that violence only begets more violence. But I don't think the movie itself is saying that because it's taking itself way too seriously. And it's also trying really hard to make you realize that Charles Bronson's character of Paul Kersey is a good guy. Right. So for anyone who doesn't know, basically, this is a movie where <clears throat> Bronson plays a, a quote unquote bleeding heart liberal, which ha ha. Uh, <laughs> he what, he also whatever. is. Um, uh, oh, crap. What's he was the- a con- he hates guns because his dad was killed by a gun and all this stuff. So like they make him out to be like this kind of like pansy liberal, whatever. And so at the beginning of the movie, uh, Jeff Goldblum and a few other thugs go in and rape and murder his wife. And then, well, I guess they, they, I don't know. I don't remember exactly. Like his wife I, dies. Yeah, I don't know she if she was murdered or if she like she died from trauma. But uh, yeah, she, yeah it was trauma because she died in the hospital. Because there's the scene where Kersey shows up at the hospital and he literally has been standing there for thirty seconds. He's like, "Why is it taking so long? Why won't anybody help me? Blah, I'm so helpless. <laughs> what can I do? Being so helpless." so ridiculous it it Um, is an odd scene but yeah they they uh they sexually assault and physically assault uh his wife and daughter yeah his daughter has like lasting trauma for the rest of the movie to the point where it puts her like in a coma practically which is a little bizarre i I don't i I mean maybe i have thoughts about that i Um, think i think that that was also a a thinly veiled and poorly executed critique of mental health at the time. And I think that she was being over-medicated. I think that they didn't know how to actually address sexual trauma. And because, you know, because, um, and so their response was just, uh, I don't know, here, try this drug, try this drug. And her husband just didn't feel like dealing with it. And so he wasn't being mm-hmm. very supportive and like, Let, let's just keep putting her in a new hospital. And yeah. they, they don't flesh that out, but just understanding some of the history of mental health in America, I think that that might've been part of what was going on. Maybe. Yeah. And I think you're uh, giving the movie way too much credit. Um, oh, of course I am. Anyway. I also give Charles Bronson more credit, <laughs> but I'll get to why in a second. So I think the biggest issue, though, is that basically what ends up happening is Charles Bronson constantly is running into, quote unquote, the filth on the street, which is normally just like black men standing on the street, Um, which that's a whole other issue. But anyway, so basically he ends up like having all these people that's like, oh, you know what you really need to do is you need to get a gun. And so he gets a gun and then he just decides to randomly go outside and wait to be accosted and then murder whoever tries to mug him. 
and then he ends up becoming this kind of like uh, Bernie Getz style vigilante where the city is applauding him for his deeds and the police are focusing so much on him. And it's so tone deaf in the way that it handles it because every time he kills somebody, the movie goes to great pains to make sure that you know that every single person he murdered was a horrible person with a huge rap sheet that the police just never caught or whatever, or like they've been arrested, but just keep getting released back into the world to murder more people and mug more. Right. People. Just like those low level and, thugs that are going to rob you. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those, it's so stupid because like the movie, the movie's ultimate kind of like uh, philosophy here is like, because Paul Kersey is taking matters into his own hands, he is making New York city, a safer place. It's like, yeah, we've seen that muggings are going down and blah, blah, blah. And the police are just upset because this man is doing their job for them. And yet, despite that, literally every single time that Charles Bronson, who is a pretty intimidating looking dude, despite the fact that he has a ridiculous haircut, <laughs> every time he goes outside, he gets mugged. Every single well, time he goes out. Part of that is because he is baiting them. Like, he is I mean, putting himself in a situation like so, so like one, sitting on the subway like he'll no, just no, keep so down an alley or sitting in a subway or but the, especially the example of him sitting in the subway like they they explain that in the movie that um you know like he he went to the grocery store just a couple of blocks from his house or like a block away from his house but then was riding the subway all day long with groceries <laughs> Because someone with groceries is an easier target because their hands are full and like they make it clear that he was obviously not actually buying his groceries. He was using that as a, hey, everyone, I'm going to be an easy target to bait someone into try to robbing him, which even even with that makes that, it though, even it, worse, though, I was going to say it's still it still feels very exploitative. It's just like, oh, yeah, if you're walking down the street with groceries, you're definitely going to be mugged because literally every time he's outside of his house, he gets mugged and shoots someone. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the movie goes to great pains to excuse everything that, that Kersey is doing and make it out to be like he is actually just a – he is a hero and he is just taking matters into his own hands because if you can't defend yourself, then you are just basically asking to be – hurt and it's one of those like really ridiculous kind of conservative talking points that i just cannot get behind and there's there i feel like there's a good movie here and i feel like you could maybe even re-edit the movie to make it a little bit more like of a pointed satire of how ridiculous that is because the whole movie i'm rolling my eyes at how ridiculous and absurd and over the top everything is in this movie and I feel like with a better director, like originally at one point, Sidney Lumet was going to be, was kind of like attached to this. And he's one of my, my all time favorite directors. And I think he would have done something so much smarter with this material. But as it stands, it's basically just like, Hey, the world's a horrible place. And if you don't have a gun, you're, you're going to die. Yeah. Like and, and the only way to solve it is to be a vigilante. Well, Part of the reason that you think, you know what, there is a good movie almost there is because there is a good movie there if this was a Western. And and that's part – so that's part of my uh, – not defense of the movie, but part of my thing about Charles Bronson, he had been in you know a lot of Westerns. And there was that sort of uh, like you defend your homestead. And I, I love his character in The Magnificent Seven. And, yeah. and like – so I, 
I've not done enough research to know that much about it, but like, I believe him saying, oh no, this was a critique of people taking the law into their own hands. I believe that yeah. he thinks that that's what the movie was, or at least that's how he For rationalized sure, yeah. it to himself. Again, right. I think that he really believes that, but I don't think the movie supports that. Oh no, at all. not at all. But I, um, I think that it's because he had done westerns, and and again, even comparing it to the Magnificent Seven, where the law isn't going to do anything to help this poor uh, town that's constantly being uh, attacked and raided and ravaged by these uh, you know thugs and outlaws. So a band of of seven bounty hunters, essentially, or seven gunmen have to go and save the town. And like, that's a great movie. And I don't watch Magnificent Seven and think, ugh, this is just teaching people that guns are the answer. Like, no, because it's like showing how to stand up against bullies. And there's a much better message that when we went through the uh, when we went through the 60s, we didn't have enough time to go into as much depth with that movie as I wanted to. Um and so, like, I, I think that Death Wish is trying to carry over some of the themes from those older Western movies, but put mm-hmm. it in a more modern setting. And that's where it falls apart, because modern settings, it, it there's there's issues because of things like the police, because of just the way that some things are handled. And mm-hmm. Uh, there's a movie that I definitely want to compare it to in, in just a second. Oh, but I think that yeah. that's the, probably not the one that you're thinking of. Um, oh, okay. The, the, okay. There's two movies that we're going to compare it to. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that that's one of the biggest issues is there wasn't a very clear, this is what the movie is trying to do. And mm-hmm. like they, they were trying to make Charles Bronson, the hero <clears throat> with the fact that like, what character flaw did he have? You know, they presented him as all of those things that you said, where he cares about the poor sort of, you know, they call him a bleeding heart liberal literally just because he doesn't think that homeless people should be killed because they are homeless. Yeah, I know. Like I know. They, it's, oh, they, they have this other character that they make just so comically villainous because like right at the beginning of the movie, this other character essentially says, Oh, well we should just kill the homeless. I forget what the exact line was. It's been a month since it's I've watched it. He's like an architect, and they're talking about like a vict- I feel I think that they're talking about like how there are all these like homeless people, like you said, kind of in the area where they're wanting to build, and how they need to evict them, and something to that effect. I think. Yeah, or he might even say something about like putting them in a gas chamber. Like it is very just over the top. Yeah. Like what? No person, even like a terrible person, is going to say something like that. Like it just it feels so off and yeah and they're uh, also constantly trying to make you feel sorry for Kersey too like where it's like oh this poor man his wife has been murdered which oh my god that rape scene or the sexual assault scene at the beginning of the movie is so gross like it's, it's it is, unsettling I know that there's I I understand like portraying try, you know kind of the truth of the matter you know we want to like baby show like how brutal and awful this really is but there's a point there was a point where it goes on for a long time and it is just so brutal that i like immediately i was like i don't like this movie like there's just something about this that <laughs> yeah it, it's really too much um well and oh, that actually brings up another <laughs> movie that i'm gonna to talk about in relation um but, but yeah like charles bronson's character doesn't have like a, a glaring flaw 
of course he's a flawed person, but in terms of the way that he's presented, he's not presented as like he's doing something that he doesn't want to do. He gets joy out of it, yeah. you know, like he's smiling yeah, and no, happy. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's just like, they're, they're very obviously trying to paint him as a hero and barely even a troubled hero. And, you yeah. know, at the end, spoilers for a, uh, what, 50-year-old movie, 45-year-old movie, however old the movie is at this yeah. point. Um, but, like, at the end, when the cops know that it's him and they're just like, okay, you got to leave town because, you know, like, you're helping our crime go down. So we can't actually arrest you because then all the thugs will know that you're off the street and they'll start thugging again, yeah. which oh is stupid. God. And I have an issue with that. You know, we'll try <laughs> to get through all of it because we have more movies to talk about beyond just Death Wish. But so he he goes to Chicago. And when he gets there, like he sees people just kind of harassing this girl and like he smiles at him, like points his finger gun at him and goes and like winks at him. It's like, oh, cool. So he's going to go start killing people in Chicago. In Chicago. Yeah. They they very clearly paint it as this is the right thing that is supposed to be happening. And. Oh, oh, man. By the way, there is also one line in this movie that is one of the most reprehensible things I've ever heard in any movie. And it's the scene where he's like at a party and you overhear people talking about him. And there's one person who's like, Oh yeah, well the guy's obviously a racist because he's like going out and killing all these black people. And then this woman chimes in and she goes, well, more blacks are muggers. What should we do? Increase white muggers to have racial equality among muggers. And when she said that, I literally wrote in my notes, this movie, because like, it's like a movie that is aware of, how racist it is and then is trying to make excuses for it being racist and that just absolutely bugs the shit out of me see i i i take a different look at that i don't think that it's self-aware of how racist it is and it's trying to put up a front to say i'm not racist i think that this movie is the equivalent of the person who says i'm not racist i have a black friend and i mean true yeah absolutely and legitimately thinks that about themselves not exactly, who thinks, yeah. not someone who knows that they're racist, and so therefore has a black friend as uh, as a no. See, here's my get out of jail free card. Like not someone like that. Someone who legitimately does not see the racism in the things that they say, and then uses videos like the the ones that Candace Owens puts out as see uh, this yeah. proves why I'm not racist. Like they legitimately yeah. do not see how they have succumbed to the their own personal and systemic racism. I think I, the the need to like that like unshakable need to defend yourself in my mind I feel like subconsciously deep down that's like okay I might be kind of racist but I feel justified in being racist and here is why. Right. I mean like you said they're probably not self-aware enough to realize it but I think somewhere deep down they they know. Maybe. But like that's what I this am, movie feels being like. Very judgmental and generalizing, so maybe and, I shouldn't do that. But, but here, here's part of why the movie to me doesn't work. His wife and daughter are brutally raped at the beginning, like uncomfortably so. You know, like you said, it it is, it, it it is it is a very 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 uncomfortable scene to watch, and so. Um, Charles Bronson goes out and starts murdering people who are trying to rob him. It, to me, there's such a disconnect of how 
violent the crime is at the very beginning. And people who I assume that in a big city that they do not have enough economic opportunities, they might be robbing someone literally to try to feed their family. And I I just I, I think that there is a disconnect for me, at least, of how violent the initiating act was and then the people that he goes out and murders. Yeah, that's why it bugs me so much that, that the, every single time he kills someone, the next day there's always like you always hear a newscast in the background that's like, oh, so-and-so was killed in the park the other day and he was wanted for this crime and this other crime and, and like assault and blah, blah, blah. And it was like every single time he kills someone, it's like they go out of their way to stop the movie in its tracks to say, this is a really bad guy. So Kersey's not doing anything wrong. He's just killing really bad people. Right. And, you know, we certainly don't see any lasting effects with that, where when black people get killed, they the news uses like mugshots and says, oh, well, this person who has a history of crime compared to when white people go on mass shooting. And it's like this white person who obviously had some mental health issues. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I'm talking about like like mass shooters that they emphasize the white right. person had a history of mental health issues rather than black people that have a history of petty crimes. There's obviously lasting impacts about movies from the 70s and once we get through a few more of these vigilante movies, we we might need to spend a second talking about that but also recognizing that we still have lots of movies that we need to talk about <laughs> and we spent a lot Sorry, of time talking had to when I watched Death Wish, I was like, oh, my God, we have to get into this. And it was also the reason why I wasn't planning on doing this, but I rewatched Taxi Driver because I was like, oh, Death Wish is like shitty Taxi Driver. <laughs> so so there are three movies that I feel like when we discuss Death, Death Wish, we have to discuss in terms of because like I want Death Wish to be a great movie. Like it could be an awesome movie. With problems, like a lot of the things, a lot of movies that I watch from the 70s, watching them in today's context of, you know, again, systemic racism and cops killing black people. Like, it it is difficult to watch some of these things, and we'll try to get into that in just a little bit when we have a, a slightly bigger discussion about it. But we cannot talk about Death Wish without talking about Taxi Driver. Um, without talking about Dirty Harry and without talking about Last House on the Left. To me, we have to talk about these three movies in relationship to, uh, to Death Wish because all three of those movies, Taxi Driver, Dirty Harry, and Last House on the Left, I think are vastly superior movies for so many so many reasons um which one of those three do you want to start with again within the context of vigilantism and specifically talking about death wish again we do not have time to go into as fully depth reviews as i want us to i mean taxi driver is the one where in my mind when i was when i was after immediately after finishing death wish i was like taxi driver has a very similar plot, at least in the broad strokes, to to this, and even a very similar ending to a to an extent. Um, but in Taxi Driver, it's obviously much more ironic and not a happy, good ending. Yeah. Um, that was the one that I immediately thought of, and the reason why I wasn't planning on rewatching it, but I was like, as soon as I ended Death Wish, I was like, I have to rewatch Taxi Driver to compare. Um, but. I also I've never seen Dirty Harry. I haven't seen any of the Harry Callahan 
Clint Eastwood, Harry Callahan movies, unfortunately. Um, so maybe you can start with that one and kind of. We'll All right. So, forever. so with Dirty Harry, uh, I, I, again, like, cause I watched Dirty Harry not that long after watching Death Wish. And so a lot of the things about Death Wish that made me go, ah, this is a problematic movie, especially in today's context watching dirty harry there was a little bit of that lingering this is kind of a problematic movie in today's context because uh the basic plot is there is a uh, there's a serial killer who is you know sniping people on the rooftops of san diego is that where they are la i don't know some some major city i'm pretty sure it's out on the west coast um doesn't really matter but there there's a serial killer and and he's he's sniping people and uh you know like sending messages into the police saying if i don't get uh whatever like a hundred thousand dollars then i'm gonna kill a, a priest tomorrow type of thing and and so like the cops are trying to stop him and dirty harry they make this very clear at the very beginning uh has a bit of a penchant for um not always following police protocol like he is the, operating a little outside the law he is the original <laughs> version of all of those 80 cops movies where you've got that wild card that's always getting in trouble with the uh with the chief of police but you know damn it at least they get results the resident fascist <laughs> not necessarily the fascist but the again like think of any of those 80s cop movies where where like they play up the you know oh this is the last straw if you do this again it's gonna be your badge and then like they do it again but it brings in the big bad and so there's the we give you a slap on the wrist and well there's usually the scene where they do get their badge their gun or whatever taken away and then they end up having to go outside the law to right law, and then they get it back in the uh, yeah that whole so I, mean, I, I do love that trope honestly so it's fun. all of that i think started with dirty harry because he's a bit of a rogue uh he has his enormous uh you know like 44 magnum he, he's got his gigantic ridiculously comically almost joker-esque uh gun that his six shooter so he's he is still very much like living in the old west um and and you know like you get that classic line of i know what you're thinking did i fire six shots or five and and all the excitement i lost count myself so what you really have to ask is do you feel lucky punk like (laughs) that classic line he says to just like some like bank robber at the very beginning where it's just like really like yes they're breaking the law but again do you need to kill him relating it to current things which get into in a minute so like he he is definitely using excessive force uh i mean one of the dirty hairy movies is like maximum force i think like um, is it magnum force i think i I thought it was maximum anyways doesn't matter might be right uh is that one called the enforcer ah probably uh, they, they, a lot of them have force in the title i think so I, i've only seen the first one i've not seen any of the sequels yeah magnum um, force the enforcer sudden impact and the deadpool yeah so like the rest of the movies in the series tell you what you need to know about the character from the first one um so so yeah like he operates a little bit outside the law sort of 
and uh and, and there's the sniper killing people and so they're trying to catch him and spoilers i don't really want to spoil this but to talk about why like we have to so if you don't want any spoilers whatsoever skip ahead a little bit um but he does eventually catch the killer without following proper police protocol so he doesn't have a proper search warrant and like does the killer get to go free and he used excessive force and so the killer goes free because of technicalities and nice yeah uh i mean at least the movie does that well yeah except for the fact that uh, (laughs) we'll we'll get into some of these bigger concepts in just a little bit um but but like then the killer gets a restraining order against the cop and because (laughs) of like protocol they have to follow it and and this like, actually sounds kind of awesome. Oh, it, it is an amazing movie. And like watching it, you, you get so frustrated and you understand Dirty Harry. And when he is, you know, like he shoots the guy in the leg and then like stands on his leg and like twists. And so like, like you feel that pain and you're kind of rooting for him. Like you are rooting for mm-hmm. Dirty Harry in that moment because of the horribly vile things that this killer has done. Um. And so, like, watching it, again, there's still that vigilantism, except he is a cop doing excessive things. But at least in Dirty Harry, again, he's doing this to someone who has been murdering people and, like, has kidnapped a 14-year-old girl. And, like, like it, 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 there's something a bit more cathartic about it, where it's just like, Yes, mm-hmm. this movie shows you the evil of the world. And so when Dirty Harry is taken out the trash, like you feel better about it rather than a death wish where they show the evil of the world. And then it, and then he just goes around just killing people for his own enjoyment. Like it, it, there's just such a disconnect in death wish. There's just no no subtlety to it whatsoever. Um, I, have, I have one interjection here. Just a fun fact that I just realized. Uh, Dirty Harry is directed by Don Siegel, who directed the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was remade in the 70s as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in which he has a cameo where he is credited as Taxi Driver. (laughs) I found that to be a really fun way to tie this whole thing together. (laughs) Oh, man, that's amazing. And there's one (laughs) other little connection from the 50s uh, Body Snatchers to the 70s that that we'll get to in, in a minute. Um but yeah, so Dirty Harry, like, like you get that sense of realism, and because he has to operate within the realm of like the police force, and you see, like, oh, he he didn't have a warrant, and so the killer gets to go free. Like, you feel that injustice, and you understand why he's doing what he's doing, and and it makes more sense. It is still glorifying guns. It is still glorifying vigilantism, even though he is a cop. He is definitely being more vigilantiesque vigilante-esque but like it it makes more sense you know mm-hmm. d- d- does that kind of make it sense, makes sense to me with what you're saying yeah yeah so dirty harry is a great movie and and again in a minute i'm gonna come back to i mean this might be something towards the end of just why vigilante movies from the 70s are so problematic for today's world um but so so that's why comparing Dirty Harry to Death Wish, 
Dirty Harry vastly superior, aside from the fact that it's just a better movie. And I mean, come on, it's Clint Eastwood. How, how can you not love Clint Eastwood? It's kind of amazing. I can understand why currently you might not love him as much, <laughs> but coming out of Good, Bad, and the Ugly, eh, that, I mean, how can you not? Yeah, Sixties and Seventies Eastwood is fantastic, even as a director as well. Like I, I'm a, I'm a big Eastwood fan as a movie star for yeah. sure. He's uh, he, he's got a lot of charisma. So Last House on the Left. The reason that that one is relatable and um, the first time that I was really made aware of this was watching the documentary Nightmares in Red, White and Blue, where Mm -hmm. it's, you know, going through the history of horror in America. And it's talking about how, you know, each decade of horror, like it, it represents different societal horrors and all of this other thing. And when talking about, I don't think that it was necessarily talking about the 70s, but one of the uh, the points that was brought up, and it's a point that I've talked about uh, in regards to horror movies long before that documentary, but it's just such a great documentary that like it emphasizes a lot of what um, a lot of what I say about horror. Um, <clears throat> it emphasized the fact that with horror movies you see realistic outcomes of terrible things. Even when the stuff that happens might not be very realistic, there's still a realistic outcome. So in last house on the left, again, a couple of girls get raped and murdered similar to death wish and the parents struggling with the trauma of realizing that the major spoilers, by the way, for a movie that's almost 50 years old, realizing that the killers are in their house, like, they go about killing them and and again like it's not that it's a good thing but at the end the the look on the face of the parents of just all right they're dead our daughter's still dead not not only is our daughter dead we have killed other people so now like they have two traumas that they're living with and you don't exactly yeah it's not explored a whole lot but the look in their faces tells you this didn't bring our daughter back. I, yeah, I, there's I mean, nothing triumphant about that about that ending. It, it is it, it is actually kind of getting more at what I think Death Wish wanted to get at, or at least what um, Charles Bronson said that he thought Death Wish was about. Where it's like violence just begets more violence, and ultimately it nothing changes. It's just oh look, yeah, like you said, we had this trauma happen to us, and then we lashed out because of it. And now we have additional trauma that we have to deal with right on top of our grief. Um, and it's a horrible, like just gut wrenching kind of movie. I, I, I I recognize last house on the left as an important movie. I don't really like it. I do think that it is successful in what it is trying to do outside of its ridiculous soundtrack and it's horrible ability. Like it's the worst tonal jumble of a movie I've ever, ever seen like the way that it treats those cops as like bumbling idiots and it plays like the goofy ass like uh banjo music every time they're on it so is the most jarring tonal shift in any movie ever made Wes um, craven is no toby hooper oh yeah no he's not i mm, shit i need to i want i feel the need to defend Wes craven but not for last <laughs> uh, <last laughs> house left is, is not a movie that I enjoy and I think it's not a great movie, but I do recognize its importance in film history. See, I actually think that it's a better movie than you do. I don't, I don't want to say that I like it because that sounds weird. I don't think that anyone should like last house on the left. 
Um, I think. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I do think it is a it is a well made movie to a certain extent. I think that it achieves what it set out to do. Like it is yes. not be that. It doesn't even really feel that much like an exploitation movie. Like the the like sexual assault that happens is brutal and uncomfortable, but not in a way. I don't know. Like the the one that happens in Death Wish feels worse to me. It feel it makes me feel more gross because it feels like it is. I, I guess it makes you more aware of the artifice of the movie because you don't really know any like his wife and his daughter are not characters. They are plot devices. Right. And in last house on the left, you get time to spend with those characters up front a little bit and they're hanging out and they're just teenagers having a good time. And there's something that feels so much more like gut wrenching about it and shattering and emotional when it happens. Whereas in death wish, it's just gross. Yeah. I, I do. We're, we're not talking about Last House on the Left. I think that this is actually one of Craven's better directed movies because I feel like the performances feel a little bit more genuine. Uh, again, yeah. little things like after after the three like rape and kill the girl and they're just like looking around and like trying to wipe the blood uh, on the grass and, and wipe the blood off their hands. Nothing is it's- said, but you get that sense of are they remorseful? Like, do, yeah. do they feel bad about what they just did? And then they go on to do something terrible again. And so it's like, they, all right. So maybe they felt remorse, but then instantly didn't, or maybe they felt remorse, but then realized, well, that's the path that we're on now. Like there, I think that there's a lot more subtleties in how things are presented in last house on the left. I, I think it's a very, again, I don't want to say good because that doesn't, accurately represent how graphic and how bad some of the things are and like any sort of rape revenge movie i don't think that anyone should enjoy watching a rape revenge movie unless it's Mm -hmm. revenge um but but like I, i don't actually think that those movies are supposed to be enjoyed i think that they're supposed to be important if that makes sense and yeah, I mean, I think the the emo- yeah, I mean, the emotion that they are trying to evoke is not of like, uh, oh yeah, you're not supposed to be like smiling and hooting and hollering, which is kind of what they do with the remake a little bit, like the revenge in the remake. If you've ever if you've seen it, it's I've, like I've very not seen much- the remake of that one, and I've not seen the remake of Death Wish. Uh, I haven't seen that the Death Wish remake, but yeah, the the remake of Last House on the Left is a completely unsubtle. It's it's a fun movie, but it's also one where it's like. It, it feels kind of more in that gross area where it's like you really just love seeing them kill these horrible, like seeing the parents kill these horrible people. It, it revels in the violence a lot more than the original movie does. I mean, it sounds like it's leaning more into the, Hey, if you're watching horror movies, like this is part of what you're watching rather than horror movies are supposed to kind of make you feel uncomfortable. And and you're supposed yeah. to be like, Oh, right. Horror movies aren't scary because of the monster. They're scary because of the evil in the world that they're representing. And Last House on the Left absolutely represents that evil. And again, you don't get... You you get closure, but you don't get resolution. It's like, yeah, they killed them, but 
Uh, I still just feel gross. In the movie that ends on an ellipsis, essentially, where it's like, yeah, this isn't really over for them, and it never will be. Yeah, and like, what are the cops gonna do? Like, obviously, <laughs> they have to arrest the parents because they just killed someone, and like, like things just feel so <laughs> off compared yeah. to Death Wish. And one of the, uh, yeah, and that brings us to Taxi Driver where death Death wish also could have been a little bit more successful if charles bronson or not necessarily successful but i think a better film how how did our 70s episode turn into a death with death wish kind of sucks episode (laughs) death wish could have been a much better movie if charles bronson had started out a great character that you're rooting for and you understand why he is killing the people who assaulted his wife and by the end of the movie you're like oh He's a villain. Like he is, he is a bad person. The movie does not present Charles Bronson that way. A normal person should be thinking about him that way. in the sense that like, Oh, he's enjoying killing people for petty crimes. That's, that's kind of messed up, but the movie Mm. doesn't present that. That's just, you know, (laughs) a sense of conscience that, uh, that presents that as opposed to taxi driver that you have a, protagonist i guess like he's is he ever really a protagonist or is he just the main character that goes more downhill from the start i mean i think he's a i mean he's definitely the protagonist i mean he's the protagonist because he's who he is the taxi driver i mean he's who the movie is about he's in every robert de niro is in almost every single scene of the movie yeah, no, um, when I'm talking about protagonist, I don't mean main character. I mean, like, the force of good that you yeah, are rooting okay. for. <clears throat> oh, no, I mean, he's not a force of good at all. He is a wayward soul who is just completely lost in the world. He, he's someone who desperately is trying to make connections with other people and failing at every level. And because of that isolation that he feels and... And because of his position as a taxi driver and all the filth that he sees in the world, he feels spurned to action so he can feel something or feel appreciated or feel like he is actually making a difference in the world because otherwise he just has this sad, lonely existence, which is immediately so much more compelling than the nonsense you get out of Death Wish because even though you know most people who watch that movie do not feel compelled to go out and murder people to feel something. I think that it's immediately relatable and you can immediately empathize with him, which actually makes what he does at the end of the movie so much more horrifying. Um, I I love Taxi Driver. I think it is truly a brilliant, incredible movie that is also, unfortunately, one of those movies that is misread by a lot of people. And It is like so many other movies... it, it's like it a is, fight club kind of thing where it's like an incel textbook. I was like, just about to say it is a movie like fight club where people watch it thinking that Robert De Niro's character is the quote unquote hero to be glorified. Like, yeah, I, I get why he was doing it. He was trying to clean up the filth rather than it being a biting satire so- and, and commentary of this is not good people like just because the main character is the main character doesn't mean that you root for them sometimes they're the main character so that you can dwell in and why they're rotten and people don't get that 
it's so fascinating because that's like that makes the irony of the ending like doubly ironic because like at the end of the movie, I mean again, you know, we're gonna spoil this a little bit here. At the end of the movie, Travis Bickle is hailed as a hero for going in and saving this little girl when in reality he has just absolutely traumatized her for the rest of her life. And even to the point where her parents write him a letter. And let's talk is, about the ending. It is so I, like it is a quote unquote good ending. Like he prevails, he gets the attention that he wanted. He feels like he has done some good in the world. And yet, you know that Well, the fascinating thing too about it is like, before all of that happens, he was going to go and assassinate someone. He was going to go assassinate a presidential candidate. And what I love about this movie is that it is absolutely like focusing on that thin line between hero and villain and how a lot of times they are kind of one and the same. It's mm-hmm. like if he had succeeded in his mission to assassinate that presidential candidate, he would be vilified. But instead, he takes his aggression out on these people who, you know, are, are considered to be filth by society at large. So therefore his violence is justified in their eyes and it's okay. Despite the fact that he has done nothing good. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's so fascinating and it works on so many different levels. So let's talk about the ending because I think that you are wrong. Oh, wow. Okay. I think not alone in this. I think he is either dead or in a coma. I think I everything after he is shot, I I think that all of that is, I, I think that it is like, as he is sitting there dying, that is his way. Like that is his reality of, I did the right thing. Here's all the stuff that is obviously going to happen now that I've done this good thing. And in, in the same way that people say like, Oh, I don't know if people say this, but you know, the, the old trope of your life flashes before your, your eyes. I don't necessarily think that uh, your one's life flashing before their eyes means that the entirety of the history of their life is instantly replayed. I think in this instance, his life flashed before his eyes in the sense that he had that one last flash of this is how my life plays out. I think that there is a compelling argument to be made, especially to like, I was thinking about this as I was watching it because when you have that scene where he's been shot up and he's sitting there and he, you know, puts the finger guns again, God, I didn't even realize that they both, both of these movies have finger gun scenes at the end in different ways where one is pointing at the other and the other is pointing at themselves. Um, But no, there, I think one of the compelling arguments is that you get that really awesome overhead shot which feels very much like his you could so argue leaving his body, leaving his body and kind of going down and seeing the aftermath and, yep. you know, looking back on what he has done. I think that that is a much less interesting ending for me. I think that there's something that's a lot more interesting about <clears throat> the idea that he has done something horrible and society at large lets him get away with it and treats him like has decided that it is something that is to be lauded. Um, because see, I think that if it, if you see him like leaving his body, then it lets everyone else off the hook. But if he is celebrated at the end, then that like is implicating society at large to a certain extent, which I think is so much more 
true. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like that it is something that feels very plausible to me. And no, see that that's part of why I think that he is again, either dying or in a coma. I lean more towards he was dying. And like, uh, that last scene is just the rest of his life, uh, sort of flashing before he, before he dies. Um, because the rest of the movie does not paint the picture of a world in which someone who did terrible things is going to be just let off the hook for what they did. Like it, it paints because it very never much happens in real life. No, no, it does. <laughs> I'm not saying real life. I'm saying the world that sure. this movie, the, the picture of the world that this movie paints to me does not end with like, oh, yeah, you did some kind of terrible things, but uh, I guess you're okay. Like, um, I just, that, that doesn't, uh, it, it Well, that's the thing, they don't see that it's terrible. Hurt. And also, I feel like, like, I love to, like, I think the the thing that really gets me is, like, the way, the way that it ends with him in his taxi cab again, and the way that he catches his reflection in the mirror, you know, like, the whole movie he talks about, like, how he's, Ferrying all these people around at night and like this almost because he's, he's a taxi driver at night. It almost feels like a sort of purgatory that he exists in and he can't sleep or anything. And he talks about how he's just sick of the filth. Like there's that great scene where the, uh, what's his name? Palantine or something. Uh, the presidential candidate is in his cab and he's like, you know what? I, I just, I think somebody needs to come in here and just clean up these streets. Um, and like I don't know, he views the world through his cab, and he sees the filth in the back seat of it, and or he sees the filth in his rearview mirror essentially. And the way that he catches sight of himself in the rearview mirror is he's like it almost feels like a moment of realization where it's like I am what I hate. No, um, see, I I for, think for a fleeting that... moment for a fleeting moment he realizes that he is no better than the scum. Maybe I don't know. I just no, I like I I think that at the end he is dead. And he views himself as a hero. So when he catches that glimpse, it's not, oh, I am what I hate. It's, yeah, I am the hero. I'm the one who's going to clean up this town, which is why there are no consequences, which is why, you know, the, the girl's parents are writing a letter saying, oh, thank you so much. We can't afford to actually get out there. But if you ever get to where we live, you know, you're, you're always welcome here. And why Sybil Shepherd is just kind of like, Hey, how how you doing? And he's just like, I'm good. Peace, yo. Like, it's yeah. just th- there are too many things that just work out perfectly for him that in in the context of the movie, it doesn't make sense. And I th- I think that he is dead. And I I mean, it's, I think that I know that, like, from what I read, that that wasn't the intention that, like, Scorsese and De Niro have. Like, they both come out and said, no, he's not dead. Or in Schrader is what Paul Schrader, who wrote the script. Like, they've all come out and were like, yeah, no, he's not dead at the end. But, I mean, again, like, it, it almost, I feel like, I, I don't know. I do, I'm sympathetic to that view. Like, it, it, there are so many compelling reasons, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just think for me personally, I think it's far more interesting if he does survive the encounter and, and, he and everything is okay because it makes that yeah i mean like what i was talking about before it makes it so much more interesting that like he was just if he if things had played out a little bit differently he would be in prison or whatever and be a villain who's 
faces plastered all over the news as like this horrible person who went and assassinated this candidate, but instead he is still the same person, but he just directed his anger at a different target, and therefore it is socially acceptable. I think that that is just just much more interesting to me. I I I I understand your point. I just don't entirely agree with it. Um. It, Man, it, I, here's 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 where my issue with that view of it is. And we have so many other movies that we need to start talking about, so I we know. probably need to move on. <laughs> my issue with it is I can understand that view from the societal standpoint of, oh, yeah, because you killed this person instead of this person, we let you have a pass. Like, okay, fine. I, I get that. Ah, the way that his character is presented over the entirety of the movie and the way that it presents like the history of him. I don't think, I don't think that he would have had that sort of character change to be more enlightened and to be more, I don't need you civil. I don't think he is. I'm good. See, I I I think think that it's presenting it as like, I think that's presenting it almost as he's done this thing. So he's cured now if he's alive, which is part of why oh, I don't no, no, think no. that don't he's think alive. That I feel like he's just a ticking time bomb at this. He's going to do it again. And who knows where it's going to be? Who knows what his target will be next? And, and again, I think that's why it's so much more interesting because it's like he gets but, away with it and then it's going to breed more violence. But I don't think that that's yeah. how it presents it. Like it presents him as more calm. It presents him as more at peace. It presents him as things are good now. I think it's a fleeting. I mean, I think it's like I feel a little bit better because I got a little bit of that recognition that I wanted, but I'm still a taxi driver and eventually I'm still going to fall back into that depression, isolation and I'm going to want to seek that attention again. I, that's, that's how I feel about it. I, 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 think the- I don't think so. I think he's dead. Yeah, but- I think what happens at the end is his own perception of how he wanted to be viewed be- because I, because he wanted to be glorified. He didn't want to be vilified because he thought that he was doing the right thing. So of course mm-hmm. that's how his mind is going to play it out. But no, like if he had been in jail, and had the letter from his parents, then I would buy it. Like if there had been just that little inkling of he is getting some of the recognition that he wanted, but also he is suffering the consequences, then I would buy it. Then I would buy a little bit more of the, all right, fine. But no, for, for him to still have his job for him to not be arrested for for simple shepherd to seem like she wants to get back with him and him to seem like he's now too cool for her it just it, it, to me it doesn't feel right if he's still alive that it it yeah, feels like, like a it feels like it has betrayed the world that the rest of the movie presented that's interesting yeah i i don't know i, I didn't feel like she wanted to get back with him because that would if that were the case then i would agree with you because there's I think her character is too strong. I love Sybil Shepherd is incredible in this movie. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if that were the case, I would agree with you. But I, I don't think, really like think about she, it in context of her character. I, also would have, I, I would not have liked it if he were in jail, though. I think that that would have been. Oh, again, I think that would have been too easy of an ending. But I'm yeah. saying that to me would have solved some of it. But think about her character. And think about how she reacted to everything else that he did 
of storming, not storming, but like going in there and be like, I, I felt that connection. You felt it too, right? Like I, I just knew that as soon as you saw me, like there was going to be something there. Again, She's like it is fascinated by him. It it is incel one hundred and one the way that he talks to her, but then yeah, when he takes okay. her to a porno. And then like, she's like, no, I never want to see you again. You're, you're telling me that you think that her, even if she doesn't want to get back together with them, the fact that she's just kind of like, how you been? That's it's good. It's good. It's good to see you type of reaction. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that she would have responded to him that way after their history together. And after he went and killed a pimp, you think that she would have just been like, okay, about it. Like, to me she was the nail in the coffin of oh he's got to be dead like the the uh the letter from the parents fine i get it the acting like nothing changed with his co-workers fine he never really shared that much with them to begin with uh still having his job mm, fine but her response to me that was the no she she wouldn't respond that way no that no, I, don't know. I can't. I remember whenever it happened, I like there. I was kind of like really paying attention to that because I was trying to decide if the way she reacted was believable to me, and it didn't really feel that off to me. But I don't like. I didn't feel like she was leading him on or anything. It felt just like we're in a cab together, and she was like maybe somewhat sympathetic to him. Because no, she, because like, like she like he goes up to her place was, and like he's just standing outside of her apartment, and she's like, "How you been?" And like it, mm, it nope it's just wrong it does not feel right to me well i understand that anywho uh, we need to talk about other movies that's true uh yeah civil shepherd's <laughs> great albert brooks is also awesome i just have to point out really quick that yes. albert brooks who reminds me so much of seth rogan in in yes. Driver, uh he is like just the coolest sweetest man in that movie, I love Albert Brooks and Taxi Driver. Um, well, and and right. it's just beautifully shot, and there, it so it is good. it is an incredibly good movie. So good. If you've never seen it, go watch Taxi Driver. It's great. I love it. Um, uh, right. let's let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about disaster movies. Oh, yeah, okay. I haven't seen just, any of them. Just cause it. Dude, dude, what? I don't think I've seen any disaster movies from the 70s. Hold on. I'm going to look through my... You can talk about them. I'll look through my list and see if I find any disaster movies. All right. Uh, So so I I watched probably more, but uh, the three like big disaster movies that I watched were um, Towering Inferno, Airport, and Poseidon Adventure. And man, watching three disaster movies back to back... um, it's very interesting because I have always thought that airport was a disaster movie. I am yeah. wrong. Airport is not a disaster movie. Airplane is a disaster movie. And I watched that movie far too young. Uh, the, like I, I remember watching that movie when I thought that I am serious and don't call me Shirley was hilarious and I did not understand why boobs were awesome. So like thinking back on my first memory of airplane, I remember Leslie Nielsen. I don't remember the nudity is how young I was when I watched that movie, Um, which again, I probably shouldn't have watched it as young as I was, but whatever. I turned out mostly fine. I love airplane airplane. It's, it's so funny. It's back 
when uh when parodies and and like farcical movies were still actually funny because they were a movie within themselves with mm-hmm. parodies rather than current parody movies where the entire movie is literally just like an exact copy of a scene from a different movie with like uh, some yeah. stupid joke and ugh. modern day spoofs are terrible oh man the 70s had a couple of from uh from monty python and uh, mel brooks yeah and but like that's because they were genuinely good movies on their own that happened to be spoofing other things but anyways Absolutely. airplane is amazing and it definitely took a lot from airport, but also not like, and, and uh, I should say that I watched Poseidon Adventure and then Towering Inferno and then Airport. So like Poseidon Adventure is a, uh, is certainly a very important and very good disaster movie. Towering Inferno is a great movie. And then Airport uh, is not a disaster movie. It is a drama. It is like watching a soap opera. It, it's like watching a soap opera that has like, you know, the that cliffhanger between two episodes where there's just enough action setting up at the end of uh, of part one to get you coming back for part two. But then like things get resolved. Kind of- yeah. And, and then things get resolved so that like when thinking about uh, so that like when you think about the episode, you're like, oh, yeah, that was a really tense episode. But it wasn't. It was just the fact that it ended on tension and you had to live with that tension until the next time you saw it. And so like all of the episodes together, there was maybe 10% of it that were actually, you know, like thrilling ish. It's kind of what airports like there. There is sort of a disaster kind of, but the, the movie is not about the disaster. It is a mm-hmm. movie about just a very run of the mill airport and like having to deal with things. And there just so happens to be a disaster in it as one of the many things that the airport director is having to deal with. Gotcha. It's, it's good. I liked it. I like it would be a much more like small scale kind of film compared to something like side adventure or towering inferno. Yeah. And, and, again, the focus just isn't on the, um, it's not on the disaster. It's a good movie. I did enjoy it. And I texted you when I was watching it and I haven't decided. I don't know if airport is the most sixties, seventies movie I've ever seen or the most seventies, sixties movie that I've ever seen. <laughs> and what, what I mean by that, um, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm saying they're correct. That, correct. <clears throat> it is late. I am tired. My words are going to get worse and worse and worse. <clears throat> Uh, so it has, this is the clearest example of just how, how many carryovers from just sexist and machismo sixties were brought into this movie. Um, one of the characters, Dean Martin is a pilot and he is cheating on his wife with all of the stewardesses because of course he is all of them. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> the Dean Martin's wife's brother, who is the director of the airport, uh, says to his sister. So the the brother and sister, uh, he, he's saying to her, essentially, you know, your husband's cheating on you, right? And she's like, yeah, but as long as he comes home to me, it's okay. So like, oh, she's a Lord. yeah. 
Yeah. It's frustrating. And it's just like, yeah. what? what? Ooh, no. God. God. Mm, no. Bad movie. Wrong. This is not like early sex, 60s swing. No. Bad. <laughs> so the girl, the, the girl that Dean Martin, the current stewardess that Dean Martin is having an affair with, uh, like he goes to her apartment for whatever reason and like they have to go catch a flight and he wants to bone her and she's like no because they don't have enough time and he says something about he, he uses some sort of airplane metaphor of like how he, uh, he got she got his gears running but won't let him take off or like something like that and it's very like you know it's it's your fault for being sexy where it's just like no oh, Jesus. then come to find out she is pregnant and he's just kind of like oh well I, I can fly you to Switzerland so you can get the abortion again not those exact words but basically there's really good abortion doctors in Switzerland oh, and, wow. and she's like no I'm going to keep it and she's like but don't worry I don't expect you to actually be involved I know that you're married oh my god <laughs> horrible holy shit yep but then he's also kind of the hero that ends up saving the plane from just utter destruction after a bomb goes because off. Because of course. Because, because of course. course. So like there's so much of that 60s carryover that ah, I would be frustrated with it in the 60s but watching it in the 70s it's like oh come on people. Uh but it's also like very soap opera y like all of them are having affairs and um, like even the main guy who uh, the director of the airport who you know for the most part is a likable character and and you're rooting for him um, it paints a very troubled marriage between him and his wife and like you understand like yeah that that sucks because he's married to the job and like he's never at home and and she's getting mad at him mm-hmm. because he's working all the time and like it's starting to affect their kids and you know like the his daughter is getting older and so she knows that something's up and all this other stuff and you're like man that sucks and also he's in love with his secretary and it's like god oh. <laughs> dear god but then on top of that, like it has really interesting, uh, almost like comic book Ang Lee style uh, cinematography where like there will be showing something in one screen and then like it'll pan over. But then like someone inside of a circle and like someone will like walk across the, the frames and like a really a lot of really interesting like screen stuff. Say what? It's got like De Palma-esque split screen in it. Yeah. And so like it's got some really interesting ways of the way that it's presented. And and there are some other flares of the 70s that it's like, this is a really, really good movie. Oh, hey, horribly sexist 60s. There you are. That's, hmm, thought, thought we were done with you by now. It And I, I, I can't decide if it's a very 60s, 70s movie or a very 70s, 60s movie, but it's uh, it's worth seeing. Um like an interesting kind of melodrama it's again it's good it's worth checking out but man it's got a lot of problems poseidon adventure is uh it's iconic and i mean we wouldn't have half of the disaster movies that we have currently without it and 
it, it sort of set the stage for a lot of the tropes that you get in disaster movies of, you know, like there's always that one person that thinks they're right. And there's always that one person who only makes things worse and people are having to sacrifice to save others. But then the person that just got saved because this person sacrificed ends up dying for some stupid reason. And, and again, like it sets up a lot of the tropes. I really, really like it. It, it's okay. And I don't want to sound like it's not worth saying. Cause again, it's, it's great, but I think that there are some limitations of when it was made, but that being said, there's also a ton about it that really held up. Like you feel like you are, you feel like the characters are in uh, a, a giant luxury cruise liner that is turned Mm. upside down in the ocean. And it feels, that sounds awesome to me. Like I love movies. uh, Well, I love movies that take place on big like sets like that, that are obviously very expensive and, and feel authentic. And you know, when people are just like in waist deep water and stuff like that, that just, (laughs) I don't know. There's something about that. That's just so fun. Like the kind of sets where if I were a kid, I would have loved to just like been on the set playing around. Like that's yeah, what it, it seems. Especially with everything upside down. Um, yeah, that's awesome. It, it is again, it's, it's a really good movie. It's got shortcomings, but it is a really, really good movie. Um, it, it also has uh, Gene Hackman as the main character who's kind of hateable, but also relatable. And like he, he's a, He's a very disillusioned and disgruntled pastor who is basically saying God won't save you. So you need to save yourself. Like that is his sermon. Yeah. And it's like, I, Hmm, he's not interesting wrong, but he sure isn't right. And so again, like the things that he says, uh, lead a lot, uh, or can lead potentially to a lot of discussion. Uh, hey, it, I need to watch this movie. I, as a kid, I used to constantly imagine like, cool it would be if my house were flooded and i could swim around in my house and then i also used to like imagine walking on the ceiling if i mean obviously it'd be horrible but as a kid you don't think about (laughs) just cool to swim around in my house um and then also like the idea of it being upside down just sounds like such a fun conceit i mean i get like it just reminds me so much of being a kid where it was like i would just like hang upside down on my bed and imagine how fun it would be to like walk around (laughs) on the roof if everything yeah, this, was like not falling toward the roof, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It just feels like a, just like a very fun, imaginative way to. Um, P- Poseidon to Adventure to like, is not a fun movie, movie. It, because it, it is a disaster movie. The entirety of the movie is centered around the disaster. Uh, it does also have Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka, um, which. Oh, man. Yeah, I love uh, Jack Albertson. Yeah, he's also. In, um, did you ever watch Dead and Buried, the Gary Sherman movie? Yeah, I still haven't. It's Dude, it's on my list coming up. I hope <laughs> he's amazing in Dead and Buried. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. I really want to watch it now. Once I watch Dead and Buried, uh, I'm going to do a beginning, middle, and end with him. Um, and then Dead and Buried is really good. And oh, then shoot, Towering let's, let's Inferno. Poseidon Adventure. Oh yeah, that that was back when he was still doing like serious movies. Uh, back when Leslie Nielsen was a serious actor, and not I love serious Leslie Nielsen, and not uh, uh, what's his name, Drebin. Is that is that his name? Yeah, Frank yeah, Drebin. Fra- yeah, Frank Drebin from uh, Police Squad, uh, Naked Gun, <laughs> Naked Gun, and Police Squad. 
And then Towering Inferno. I don't know what I expected from Towering Inferno. That it it kind of blew me away a little bit. Like I yeah, I did not expect to enjoy a disaster movie as much as I did while at the same time feeling so like this is a disaster. I I feel like I am there in this disaster and it is uncomfortable. Um, but oh my god, the cast in that movie is amazing. Let me let me pull this up. There there are a few it people has that Paul Newman in it. Yes, it has Paul Newman as like the the leading man. Um, but the oh god, Towering Inferno also does a great job of being like um, it, it has a large cast, and you are able to follow a number of characters and feel like it's an actual ensemble movie rather than being about a main person with some side characters. It's got Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, um, OJ Simpson in a bit part, Robert Vaughn, Robert Wagner. uh, Yeah. Fred Astaire is in that movie. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a fantastic cast. It is. It is just such a solid movie. And I did. I, I love it. I love Steve McQueen. And I, I watched a, a couple other Steve McQueen movies between sixties and seventies. And he's just one of those actors, you know, like it's very easy or not very easy. You hear a lot about people talking about Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And I feel like Steve McQueen is like right in between those two, like maybe not quite as much boyish charm as Robert Redford had in those early days of Red, uh, Redford. Um, yeah. But maybe not quite as grizzled as Paul Newman, but at the same time, never looked like a teenager, even when he was a teenager. Yes. And I, I love Steve McQueen and his character in towering Inferno. Like he is the, uh, he's the fire chief fire commander, but he's the one in charge of the fire department. Who's like having to do all of these things. And it just, God, it's a great movie. I I love it. It between those three, you need to watch towering Inferno. Um, I really, I was leaning toward Poseidon Adventure just based on the whole boat thing, and also I've been like really wanting to watch Titanic lately because we've been talking about it so much um, off mic. Uh, so <laughs> that, I was leaning. I, I was going to make a joke about how Poseidon Adventure was the uh, better version of Titanic, how Titanic oh, was God. the James Cameron of, <laughs> of Poseidon Adventures. <laughs> Man, I love to that uh, the Towering Inferno has William Holden and Faye Dunaway uh, because they're also they star together in Network, which is one of my not only one of my favorite '70s movies, but just like one of my all-time favorite movies in general. Um, so yeah, that that sounds. I I I will prioritize Towering Inferno. You know, like next year once we finish these other decades. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, here here's one of the things that I just I loved so much about Towering Inferno, like. In uh, in Poseidon Adventure, there was a natural disaster of a giant tsunami that flipped the ship. Can't really control that. However, like there was one specific character who was doing things that like very clearly kind of made things worse, but also not really because again, there's natural disasters and, and whatever. Towering Inferno, there is like a very clearly identifiable. This is all his fault, person. 
except for the fact that other people are also to blame and there's also like the critique of um just man's hubris and like we need to have the biggest tallest bestest newest shiniest building and oh mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it was the titanic of buildings like oh pff, our building's not going to catch fire and <laughs> And like having to cut corners to save cost and having to do all these other things for regulations. And there's a lot of commentary that it makes it very, very clear without driving the point home of being like, this is a critique of bureaucracy. While at the same time, be like, oh, right. Yeah, this totally wouldn't have happened were it not for this, this, this and this. But um, one of the things that makes Towering Inferno. I think such a great movie and a great disaster movie. Uh, when people die, they do not shy away from it. So there are a few people that die on fire and like you see them flailing around on fire and it's, it's not. It's, it's funny that you say that. Cause like, I was just sitting here thinking like, man, these movies are going to be so much fun. Like I love disaster movies because of how fun they are. But of course no. these are seventies, seventies disaster movies. So it's going to be like, just completely brutal and and not really uh, the fun kind of like letting people die. Right. I, that sounds horrible to say no, fun. No, I, I, I get what you mean by that. You know what I mean? It's, like I'm, it more, it's less Roland Emmerich and more. Uh, God, I love Roland Emmerich. <laughs> uh, I, know, I, know, I, we, I knew I shouldn't have brought him up. So. I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard not to talk about it. Also, him. my God, these disaster movies have the best f-ing posters. Oh my God, they're so amazing. Uh, just these incredible illustrated posters that are super detailed and have all these people and like incredible scenes. Well, that's back before they were just the floating heads uh, posters. Uh, So so with Towering Inferno, just a heads up, which again, in the time that it was made, maybe wasn't so big of a deal, but especially watching a Towering Inferno in a post 9-11 world, um, there are at least two people that you see jumping out of a window in over the hundredth floor. Oh, wow. And you see them falling. And one person you see hit the side of the building and like, then they tumble. It's obviously a dummy. I I don't know like at what scale they, they filmed this or like how big that thing actually was, but the way that it shot, it looks honest to God, like, like they just threw the actress out the window and let her hit the side of the building. And Jeez. yeah. And when it happened, I was like, Ooh, ah, whew. I can't say that I'm enjoying this movie because it feels too real, but it is a great movie. And yeah, it, you need to watch it. It's, it is such a solid I movie. I need to watch more disaster movies. I, I love, I love that genre in general. Well, once we do our Roland Emmerich um, retrospective, then just watch all of his movies because, you know, Roland Emmerich is the Spielberg of disaster movies. Jesus Christ, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, speaking of Spielberg, Um, let's let's talk about Spielberg. This is the decade of Steven Spielberg, for sure, after he... uh, he finally got some work after just kind of like hanging around the universal lot for a while until people were like, all right, kid, get out of my hair go direct a movie. <laughs> yep. Have you heard the story? Like he basically just snuck into the universal lot and hung out all day until people just let him make a movie. Essentially <laughs> is what he did. I, um, I love Steven Spielberg. I, I know gosh. that 
not everyone does and eh, whatever but too many other things to talk about yes steven spielberg um i i watched close encounters of the third kind and jaws this time around in terms of 70s movies Yeah, uh, I did not watch Jaws, uh, unfortunately, but I did watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the very first time because um, that was a huge blind spot. This is the first movie that I watched for this episode because I was like, this is my biggest blind spot of the decade, I felt like. Um, because much like um, a vast majority, well, maybe not a vast majority, but a lot of Spielberg films, this is one that is often considered to be among his best movies that he's ever made. One of his masterpieces. I think all um, of his movies are masterpieces. Uh, okay. Let me take I, that back. I don't I've agree, o- but I've <laughs> only seen artificial intelligence once and it's been too long. I remember not liking it at the time. I need to revisit I, it. I feel I, like I need to revisit it too, because I hated that movie. The first time I watched it, same. Um, I hated it. Uh, I I loved it for the first two hours that were the first half of the movie. The ending is the worst thing ever. I feel like it is so bad. Yeah. I I, I need to rewatch it it and give it a second chance because I I need to watch it in the context of Spielberg. Like I, I need to watch a lot of his movies and some of the other things that were happening around that time to see if to see if it's better than just the movie itself in isolation. But anyways, now we're talking yeah. about close encounters of the third Agreed. kind. Close encounters, man. This movie was a lot different than I expected. Um, because, you know, I think Spielberg, especially of all the like Hollywood new wave guys, he's the one who he's typically the one that's considered to be the most commercial, I guess, you know, he makes feel good movies to a certain extent. I mean, not really in the seventies about um, alien abductions and about giant sharks eating people and about giant dinosaurs eating people. Right. But there's always about like a, a the kind loss of, of one's child and having to have a robot kid instead. And, and about the Holocaust. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you about I the hear Holocaust and about an, an alien that can not only read the minds, but also control the actions of a 10 year old boy. And yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. These are, these are all very few movies. There is a whimsy to Spielberg that (laughs) is mistakable, even in his harshest, even, even like Schindler's list. There is a, I mean, in some of those scenes, there is kind of a joyous nature to them Bef- like with Schindler kind of like going out to these parties and, and you know, sleeping around. But anyway, there, there's a, like Spielberg is a guy who makes popcorn entertainment that is a lot smarter than most other popcorn entertainment. So I don't yes. know. Closing is a movie that is a much, much more kind of pessimistic movie than I expected it to be. It's a, it's pretty dark. And I think, I don't know if everyone feels this way, but I think it's mostly how I feel because I am a, father um there's something about the ending of this movie that is both like awe-inspiring and also terribly tragic um and sad uh so yeah i I don't know i think this movie is truly incredible and a lot more a little bit more emotionally detached to a certain extent i don't know like it's it's a movie that's really about obsession i guess Mm mm-hmm um, and the way that your obsession can just alienate everyone around you, including the people that you <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The alienate. Um, 
It's a it's it's a fantastic movie. Richard Dreyfuss is really incredible. Um, there's a scene in this movie that, like, if you try to describe it, it sounds really ridiculous. But the way that Spielberg shoots it is so so actually emotional. I think. But like the scene where he comes to the t- the dinner table and he starts like sculpting the mashed potatoes into mm-hmm. a mountain, and his son just starts like crying. Is like again, like if you read that on the page, like it sounds just kind of absurd. Like dad's just making a mashed potato mountain and his son starts crying. But it is such a gut wrenching scene. And the fact that this movie, like outside of the alien stuff, is kind of autobiographical. Like this is one of the only Spielberg movies where he actually gets credit as the screenwriter. Um, and he puts, I feel like he's putting a lot of his own like personal upbringing and like the fact that he, his parents went through this kind of like bitter divorce and um, I, I, I don't know. There's just something that's really like beautiful and sad about this movie that I really connected with. Um, well, so and I, also I had to remove from at the same time. Like, I think that part of the reason for that, uh, you know, going back to, there's always a little bit of whimsy in, in Spielberg's movies. I think that it's because he has so much just heart and humanity in his movies, you know, and, and he just has such a solid understanding of, of just like, again, like humanity. So when he's making he feels a like drama, somebody who never really grew up, like he, he feels like a guy who always sees the world through a child's perspective, even when he's making movies for adults to a certain extent. I, I think it's more of, he understands that balance of seriousness and lightheartedness. He understands that you have to grow up, but at the same time, you can't ever fully grow up or else you've lost so much joy. And right. And, and, and again, like he just has that understanding and that's why he's able to make a dinosaur movie where the dinosaurs are eating at half the people. But at the same time, you're like, oh, man, that was such a fun movie and I love it. It's like, well, wait a second. Some dude got eaten in half by a Tyrannosaurus. How is that fun? Of course, it's because <laughs> Steven Spielberg and he's just able to to balance that. And um, and I'm actually really glad that you used that specific scene in um, Close Encounters where he's sculpting the mashed potatoes at the dinner at the dining table because you and I spent a fair amount of time when we did our Jaws episode talking about another dinner scene. The scene mm-hmm. where uh, Roy Scheider is like, I forget exactly what point it was in the movie, but like bad things had already started happening and he was already like, dealing with the weight of the situation and he was sitting there and just like thinking through everything and like rubbing his face and his kid was there mirroring everything that he was doing and and he realized my kid is watching me my kid is doing everything that i am doing i have to put on a happy face so that my son isn't having to carry the same weight that i am carrying and mm-hmm. so, like, he didn't go into an instant, like, oh, here's me being all happy now. Like, there was that slow transition of the awareness. He's watching me doing something, sun mirroring it, doing something else, sun mirroring it. And, like, there was that steady progression to get back to him and his son smiling. And mm-hmm. there, there's no dialogue, <laughs> but that scene is, to me, one of the best scenes in Jaws. Jaws is a perfect oh, yeah. movie. 
if you've not listened to our episode on jaws go back and listen to it we spend like two hours talking about how jaws is a perfect movie yes that one scene alone like that that should be in uh in the that one perfect shot thing just in terms of that oh, yeah. scene alone is enough to tell you everything that you need to know about these characters. It, and it's kind of interesting too, because close encounters is kind of like the flip side of that. Exactly. Where it's like complete lack of awareness <clears throat> of the people around you because you've experienced something that is just so beyond your understanding of what the world is. Um, but but it's the lack of dialogue. It is just how people are responding. And rather than Roy Scheider's awareness of my son is watching me, Richard Dreyfus completely oblivious to the fact that his kid is crying. And, and and like watching those two scenes in relation to each other, just oh my god! Like you could put on an, an entire semester's worth of film school just in comparing those two scenes mm-hmm. and. Well, and it's it's really fascinating too because I think that <clears throat> it's Close Encounters is a movie that like is very steeped in Americana. Like it is, there's so much like product placement, and it's very much just like about these kind of like middle this middle class family. And I feel like it is, you know, to get back at the way that it's these movies are reflective of the time that they're being made in, like the 1970s. Uh, is a time when the divorce rate in the United States like skyrocketed. Um, and I feel like this is a movie that on some level is also like kind of tackling that and kind of like this uh, this uh, dissolution of like the nuclear family that we got that we had in the in the 50s and and to in the 60s as well to a certain extent. Um, I, I don't know, there's just something that's so honest about that. And it, again, it's one of those movies where as I was watching, I was like, gosh, I hate this so much. Like, I hate to see this. It's it's ripping my heart out. But it also is one of the, again, like, so indicative of the 70s. It's, like, gritty and raw and and brutal. And this is just, like, despite all of these, like, you know, kind of, like, awe-inspiring moments of extraterrestrial life, it's, like, there's also this darker thing that is going on to the people around him. Um, sorry, I'm kind of rambling a little bit. Oh, no, you, my- you're fine. Um, yeah. When I got to the end of close encounters, like I was smiling cause I was like, Oh, this is such a fun, happy movie. And then as I was thinking that to myself, I'm like, no, no, it's not. This is a sad movie. Like he yeah. just abandoned his family. And I just, there's nothing happy about this and yet somehow Spielberg brings that humanity and and I wonder too you know like you know, I, I talked about how I feel like he's putting a lot of his own life into this with you know the own his his own or his parents like divorce that he had to deal with but also Spielberg himself has been married multiple times and like I wonder too if this is kind of like representative of his obsession with filmmaking and the way that it kind of pulled him I, I actually don't know for sure if he had kids at this point in his life um he might not have but uh i don't know like maybe i can't remember i feel like maybe actually i read something where he was talking about how later on in his life like if he had made this movie after he had had children he might have done it differently because in his mind he was thinking more about like just pursuing your passion um 
Yeah, I, but, I think that like, if he had made it later, it. he would have made it where Richard Dreyfus was a just a bachelor, so that he didn't have to leave things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that Close Encounters of the Third Kind would make for a great thematic pairing with a uh, Videodrome, just in terms of you know obsession. Oh man, that'd be interesting. And huh. the impact that it has on one's self and one's relationships. Hmm. obviously don't watch video drum with your kids but uh <laughs> <laughs> oh man but yeah close encounters is is uh is a fascinating movie and i feel like just watching it the one time was not enough like i feel like i need to watch it again to really dig deeper into what is actually happening and man that scene to where um where the aliens come to get barry the little boy in the movie uh is harrowing i mean like it is so uh, it, it's crazy like there's there's a certain part of me that feels like there are elements in this movie that are kind of horror uh, um oh yeah of, of course they are like when that child is abducted and i mean it's 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 crazy too because like ultimately you know he he does come back at the end and it's and it's happy to a certain extent but but man that scene where like just the lights are flashing and you know, that the door opens, like all the toys come to life and that door opens and kind of like the light shining in and he runs out. So I don't know, man, it is just so, it's such an evocative. You mean the scene, scene that stranger things obviously stole when they had, uh, oh, what's his yeah, name? Totally, Will walking out of the arcade. They absolutely. Yeah. I mean, which, which is fine. Like, I mean, if you're going to pay homage to someone like Spielberg all the way, um, sure. Yeah, and keeping with some of that realism, that's one of the other things that I really enjoyed about Close Encounters is it's an alien movie that isn't about aliens whatsoever. I mean, yeah, like, fine, yeah. whatever, it's the driving plot. But rather than, uh, you know, like some of the 60s movies where it's we're voyaging out into space and, you know, we're going past the unknown. And unlike some of the 50s movies of we have these atomic monsters from space showing us the evils of our ways. And, you know, like there were all of these sort of like epic, fantastic space movies from mm. um, from decades before. And then you get to 70s and it's a little bit more of, yeah, maybe there's aliens. Who cares? Like it, that, that's yeah, not the it's, point. It's- it's fascinating too because like it almost feels like a reaction against all the like 50s and 60s monster movies where the aliens are always coming to kill us and it's like no what if the aliens are coming just because they like us and are they want to hang out with us to a certain extent like they are benevolent to a certain extent yeah they're and, they're just showing up to teach um do re mi like uh, um <laughs> maria von trapp man the use the use of uh the use of music in this movie is really fascinating and uh, like just incredible. It, it actually reminds me a lot. Did you ever watch Arrival from, a, from like 26 Amy Adams? It's Arrival is very similar because it is a movie much like Close Encounters that is kind of about communication. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't want to get too much into it because it's it's really it, Arrival is really good. Um, they would that would make a really good double feature with Close Encounters because it's very similar. But um, yeah, the way that they communicate with the aliens is really fascinating. And I'll also give Close Encounters credit for something that I usually am not a big fan of, and that's, like, procedural stuff. Like, it's a movie that really digs into the minutia of how we, how the world might actually react 
to extraterrestrial life. Like you get the great scene with uh, inside, like I, I don't know if it's NORAD or or some kind of like. Uh, maybe just like the Air Force or something where they spot the extraterrestrials and they're like talking back and forth with the pilots and asking if they want to report it in. And like, like they just really get into the details of like how we would actually react in that situation um, from like a strategic kind of standpoint. And then too, you even get like a global perspective with like Francois Truffaut's character Um I, I don't know, like, there's the, the procedural elements of this movie are really fascinating, too, and, like, they really get those right, and they're interesting, even though I normally am bored by that kind of stuff, because I'm so much more interested in, like, the character beats. Um, Again, it's because Spielberg knows how to build that world, so you mm-hmm. actually care <laughs> about the world in which these things are happening, much in the same way that Roland Emmerich does an amazing job of putting you into... <laughs> Oh, I joke, but uh, I'm also serious. Roland Emmerich does a great job of turning a three-hour movie into, of course it has to be three hours because I have to care about all of these characters. So, yes, Roly, make me care. Yes, make me care about John Cusack uh, <laughs> driving through an earthquake and getting shit sprayed all over his windshield. Yeah, no, of course, uh, that, that's what has to happen. And being mean to old people. Yeah, well, you know... I, I have a joke, but we've oh, made man. enough jokes. Oh my god, we have so many more things that we need to All talk right. about. We are running very low on time, and by time I mean um, just consciousness because I am getting tired. There All right, Nathan, so are... listen, I have to I have to ask you. You did, as we mentioned earlier at the top of the episode, you watched. You know, you've kind of had this running theme where almost every decade you're watching a movie that is considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time. Yes. So I have to ask you. How did you feel about Kayoma? <laughs> you stole my joke. <laughs> oh, no. Did I really? Yes. yes. Okay. I was expecting you page. to say, so how did you feel about The Godfather? And I, honest <laughs> to God, was going to start talking about Kayoma. Uh, yes, I beat you to it. <laughs> um, Kayoma. The Kayoma. Uh, Franco Nero classic spaghetti S- western. Sweet Jesus, Kaoma. So, like, as I was starting to go in that transition of we're running out of time, like, there's only a few more things that we're going to have time <laughs> to talk about. I was about to say, okay, I want to talk about, like, some of the realistic horror things, but we talk so much about horror movies that we're going to be fine to not go in depth, and we need to talk about uh, whatever. And then there's a couple other movies that I wanted to just throw out as quick examples. <laughs> and then I was like, but we have to talk about Kaoma. Kaoma. I have a uh, a double Blu-ray pack with Kaoma and I don't know some other Western movie that I didn't have a chance to get around to. I was going to because uh, it has Lee Van Cleef and I, and I love Lee Van Cleef, but I oh, yeah. didn't have a chance to watch it. And I'm so glad that I went with Kaoma instead. This movie, I I don't even know where to begin with this movie. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the, um, poster for this movie is amazing. I don't know if this is going to focus enough for you. There you go, Eric, since you were actually watching my screen, not the people listening uh, to this later on. Yes. This, I, oof, I don't, 
Uh, let me let me I'm going to I'm going to give you a minute to to gather your thoughts because <laughs> you don't know what to say. Me, and I'm like I've never heard of this movie so I'm probably not going to watch it and you're like but wait a minute this is a movie that is about an ex-union gunfighter who is also like he's half uh he's like half, half Native white, American. American and he is going back to his hometown which is currently like plague-ridden essentially um, yes. and the town has been taken over by, um, his, by this, uh, he's like a Confederate, uh, like a former, like, Confederate yeah, ex- soldier. The, the, the Confederate soldiers, and this is after the civil war. And so, you know, racists that still be racist because they think that they should be in power, uh, controlling includes, a town. Includes it, his half brothers who would like beat him up when he was a kid because he is a half breed. Um, Oh my God. But so like, there were so many things that I was just like, Whoa, this sounds incredible. And also just hearing that he's going back to a town that is infected with the plague made me like, okay, that is something that's actually happening right now in the real world. So um, I need to watch this movie to see, I I don't know. There's just so many things about that that just feel very prescient or not, maybe not prescient, but just like, can parallel what is actually happening in the real world today. Yeah. It, it um, felt a little too just like, Oh, Hey movie from the seventies. I didn't know that you were making a movie about our current situation. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And man, what, what a fine this is. Like, this is <laughs> like it, it feels apocalyptic when you watch it. It does not feel like that. It is a movie that actually takes place in the, the real American West, which I mean, let's, be honest, no Western really does feel like the real American West, but it feels like a movie. It feels almost like Mad Max um, where he goes back to this hometown and it's just like, it's this plague is run through. Actually, what it really reminds me of is the dark tower series, which literally is a post-apocalyptic Western. Um, it feels very much like the first, like the gunslinger. Um, but man, Franco Nero rides into town as like this weird kind of like hippie, because he walked around wearing like a coat with no shirt on underneath. Oh, you see uh, so much uh, Franco Nero chest in this movie. So much, and he's got like this bandana, or I mean, like a headband, I guess, that he wears. Um, it is just, it it is a movie that is just dripping with personality, um, and really unlike anything I've ever seen. It, I I, man. I still don't know where to begin with this one. It is everything that you said and so much more. I watched it again because I've got it on Blu-ray and the, uh, the cover art is just amazing. And so I was like, yeah, sure. And then when I read the description of, again, all those things that you said of he is half native, half native American, uh, coming out of the civil war, going back to a plague ridden town being run by an ex Confederate soldier and his racist half brothers who like they, they were controlling the town. And so like, they weren't letting medicine get into, uh, they weren't letting medicine get into the town. And, Oh, we need to come back to that in a second in terms of you were watching it as, wait, does this mean he's a pro masker or an anti-masker? And I was like, no, no, I'm watching it more as, but I, I need to find what exactly yeah, I said there. Um, it, it is a, it's a good spaghetti Western and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, Franco Nero is very just 
he he is the good guy like you know he's impossibly fast in terms of his gunslinging skills and all of the things that after just leaving the 50s and 60s especially the 60s that we come to know and love about westerns um of a bygone era and then and then the singing starts and and it is a woman Yes, there is a chorus. There is a single woman singing what is happening. So, like, if in the movie he went and he rescued this, this is a thing that happens, but he rescues this pregnant woman from uh, from these Confederate soldiers who are just going to, like, put her, put her in with the rest of the plague uh, not patients, but the rest of the plague people because her husband had the plague and so uh, they're like, well, obviously you do too. So like he rescues her and then takes her back into town. Then the singing would talk about Kaoma saving the pregnant woman, taking her into town. Like literally what so, you just watch. She is singing. It is so absurd. And is literally just telling you, like you said, tells you everything that's happening, tells you everything that Kaoma is thinking about, but not actually saying it's, um, it, it's great. Well, hold on. Because that's silly enough as it is. When she starts singing, I'm like, what is going on? And also, I love this. And then, about halfway through the movie, major spoilers. I almost don't want to say this because I want people to experience it on their own. But I can't talk about Kaoma and not talk about this. Kaoma starts singing. Not like not actual Kaoma in the movie, but in the same way that you have the woman singing the chorus telling you the plot of what you literally just saw, you start getting the voice of Kaoma singing his thoughts, letting you know not only what he is doing, but how he also thinks about what he is doing. And it is rough and it is it is bad and like there is no trying to hide his accent and who my and and when it happens <clears throat> that's where i broke and and like when when i was watching it and i got to the point where he started singing i started sending eric just a bunch of frantic messages just like oh my god dude dude <laughs> like, dude oh my god seriously i oh man i want to tell you but i can't tell you just yeah i know i'm watching it have you gotten to the singing yes have you gotten to the second singing? What second singing? Dude, dude, just just dude, dude, trust it, me, dude. Uh, <laughs> it is simultaneously the best thing about the movie and the worst thing about the movie. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, I, and I think I wrote in my little letterbox blurb about it. I, w- I said, this would be an undeniably stronger movie if they took all of this ridiculous singing out of it. However, now that I've heard it, I cannot imagine it not being in there because it needs to be experienced. Like I, I would hate to remove it just because it is unbelievable. Um, it's just, it's so wild. Um, yeah, I don't, this movie is like actually also just incredibly well made. Um, the production design is really fantastic. Franco Nero's performance is really extraordinary. Oh, he's insanely captivating. He really is like you cannot take your eyes off of him. Um, there's this really fantastic the scene of him talking to his dad. It's yes, yeah, the chest that you just drawn right into all that into that hair. 
Uh, there's this really incredible scene that's just like him and his dad talking where the camera's like swiveling around them and I, I don't know, like it's it, it's this very simple thing, but there's something that's just so magnetic about it. And then the final shootout in this movie is gut wrenching. One of the best like actions at, like shootouts I've seen in a western. Honestly, I can't believe this movie is not more well known. It, there's just like this incredible verticality to it, where they're like climbing up on buildings and falling off of things, and like it's brutal, but also fun and. Um, there's like some interesting kind of like Christ allegory things going on in there. Like they're using a lot of yep. They use iconography of him being like it, uh, crucified, and it also has uh, Woody Strode from the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance playing. Yeah, he played Pompey. Oh man, he plays such a great character, and just like it, it Woody Strode's character in Kaoma is. Uh, so much of what can be discussed about like the importance of the uh, the racial and sociocultural context revolves around his character in that town and the way that he is treated. And like at one point when Kaoma is mad and the way that he responds to him and you're just like, what? But then he's like, I didn't mean it. And like you yeah. see it in you, uh, you see it in um in, in Woody's, Woody's character's face, like yes, you did mean it, but I also understand it doesn't make it right. Yeah, but it also it really it's it's truly a very thoughtful movie about racism. Yeah, which is for a western because so many westerns are just incredibly racist, um, especially when it comes to Native Americans. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like I, I really think that this is this is a true hidden gem, and I would love it if more people would discover it. And also, there's going to be a sequel. What? Um. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that I saw that. All. Yeah. Um, I, I still seen them. Sorry. Uh, the director of the movie is still alive, and he is. Um, apparently in pre-production right now, or at least was before this pandemic hit, on a movie called The Fourth Horseman, starring Franco Nero as Kaoma. I, I thought uh, that there uh, were other Kaoma movies. I could be wrong. I don't believe so. No, but like there is literally, they're literally making or trying to make a sequel to this movie right now. Oh, that makes me so happy. And, it's, it has, and the cast, here's, here, here, listen to this cast. Franco Nero, of course. Bill Mosley from uh, like Devil's Rejects. Kane Hodder. Joe Dante is an, a character in this movie, is an actor. Mick Garris. Um, Alex Cox. Like a lot of directors are in this movie. I don't like. I, I have to see this. Like, okay. I'm fascinated are, is, by this. Is this an actual movie or uh, did you get like, a hold no. of my dream journal again? No, it is an actual. Like, go to. Uh, apparently the original title of the movie it's on IMDb, The Fourth Horseman it's a, it's listed as a 2020 movie but I would assume it's probably 2021 now uh, the original title of the movie was Kaoma Rises <laughs> um, seriously I don't oh share my, my with you on this thing uh, I, I was, d- 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 later once you know we're yeah, done we'll with do this, later, send but, me a link because I, <laughs> I have to see that uh, so, so just a minute ago, when you mentioned the shootout at the end and it being like a great shootout, it is like it, 
it's a very engaging again like it draws you into what's happening and it when when i said it's gut-wrenching it is one of the emotion one of the most emotional scenes that i've seen in a while like something happens i'm not going to spoil this that i honest to god was about to cry until kaoma starts singing and <laughs> i'm so glad that he sung during that that moment because it, it it was really hard for me to watch like i'm i'm not joking i'm not just playing this up for whatever reason it was an emotional scene for me and um, yeah it really is the and and his singing breaks that tension and and i don't know how to feel now it's i it's, um, it reminds yeah. me, like what what really works about it is like you get this like he has a genuine relationship with his dad like you see them connecting both as like in the present day but also through these flashbacks which i love the way that they do the flashbacks oh yeah where, like you just like Kaomo be walking and then he'll look and then he will literally see a younger version of himself walk past him and then he's like watching it as if he's watching a movie and he is there like he's present in the scene reliving the flashback like it's a really cool stylistic choice to kind of like really draw you into those memories um because it puts it in the now it puts it in that like real moment of as he's experiencing this like he is actively remembering it it's such a great way to deal with although i've got to say the 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 little the tiny version of kaoma looks like they literally just put a wig on a kid and and like gave him a headband it reminds me of, of like the movie Joe Dirt. When you see the <laughs> Joe Dirt with his hair, like it's it's very it's very silly. Uh, the way that the kid is literally dressed, basically exactly the same. He's he's tiny Kaoma without a beard. Um, I, I do not is, disagree with that. Man, one I love one it. of the other things that makes this movie so great, and why there are so many things that are relevant to today, and why there are so many things that we could talk about, on top of the fact that there is a plague. Uh, and everyone is treating everyone else as a social outcast because they were even just around someone that had it. Uh, and beyond the way that it has um, the con- the Confederates after the Civil War is over trying to maintain of a town, trying to maintain power of a town. Mm-hmm. There's also the um, th- there's also those siblings that they're not necessarily racist although they very obviously are they are just clearly driven by money so it's not that they don't have any scruples it's that money is their only deciding factor and their their economy over the lives of others yes and so (laughs) so that is yet another level of um how this movie is incredibly relevant and how kaoma has to defeat don jr i mean uh how kaoma has to defeat whatever dude's <laughs> name is um it's just oh man it is it is ridiculous how relevant this movie is um and oh man and kaoma's last line of the movie it's it, it's a good line in the context of what's happening it's like it's kind of a dick move right now, Kaoma. Like, I, I understand why you're saying it. I understand what you're doing. Like, sure, there's a message behind it, but also kind of a dick way to end this movie. And and I wouldn't have it any other way. Oh man, yeah, it's it's really a lovely little little. I'm so glad that that I, we discovered this. 
It, it is it is undoubtedly going to become at least an annual viewing for me, if not like two or three times a year. It it's wow. it. I mean, come on. I, I watched Troll 2 on an annual basis. I watched uh, Blood Rage <laughs> at least once a year. Come on. Shouldn't be a surprise that Kyoma is going to be on very heavy I'm rotation gonna watch, from now I'm going to watch more Franco Nero movies. I've never seen like Django or anything. Um, I, I need to I need to check out some more of those. It's, uh, yeah. All right. All right. So, so there's, there's only a few more things that I want to mention. Uh, where's my okay. list of movies? I need to get back to that list. Um. So one of the things, and we talk about horror so much on this podcast that I, I really do think that we're going to be fine to not go into nearly as much depth as um, as I would like for us to do. But you know, we could have done an entire episode just on seventies horror movies. Uh, but just really quickly, keeping with some of that realism and just gritty seventies ness, seventies ishness. It's a word, right? Um. I, I really enjoy the fact that in the 70s, there start to be a lot more horror movies based on original ideas beyond just, you know, uh, gothic monsters in in a fresh coat of paint. You know, and yeah, I started the uh, the month watching like four different Hammer Dracula films, and they're great. And Dracula AD 1972 is one of my favorites. Oh my goodness, I love that movie. But it's still just another dracula movie it's great i love mm-hmm. it but it's dracula and so getting movies like jaws uh and and halloween and carrie and um suspiria and, and suspiria and uh, texas chainsaw massacre and last house on yeah, the left and and like there's so many the wicker of, man and and wicker man and the, the 70s feels like the start of modern horror oh and even though it's a remake, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, one thing that I wanted to say about that, um, watching it, so we just watched it for the first time last year during our Blind Spots coverage. Yeah. Watching it again this year within the context of 70s movies, it takes on a completely different feel with all of that realism and with the cynicism. You know, it's no longer about a red scare, it's about just like losing who you are. And, and just not being a full person anymore. It's so many things that, again, we, we could go into uh, an entire episode about it. Um, but, oh, crap, and I don't have it pulled up. But the, the main character from the 50s version. Um, what's his name? Do you happen to remember that offhand? I know that we're both uh, bad with names when it comes to... Is it McCarthy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cormac McCarthy, right? Is that his name? Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> uh, I can remember. I think it's McCarthy. Yeah, it's, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Did you I, say Cormac? You like the author? I don't, it's not Cormac McCarthy. No. What, who am I uh, thinking? Give me one second. I I will pull this up because it it doesn't really matter. But now that I've started saying it, uh, now now I just need to know. Hmm. Invasion of the Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. I wasn't that far yeah. off. So Kevin McCarthy, no. not Cormac, <laughs> not Cormac McCarthy. Cormac Look, McCarthy. we've been recording uh, for over like two and a half hours at this point. It is very late. Come on, yeah, I was close enough. 11. I I should get at least a little bit of a pass on that one. Anyways, Kevin McCarthy uh, was the star 
of the 50s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He has a brief cameo in the 70s remake. So, uh, I now have a new theory that the 70s version is not a remake. It is a sequel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh And and him running through the street is not just a nice little wink and a nod to, oh, (laughs) yeah, you're in the original. Cute. It is him like still running 20 years later from the original trying to warn uh, America and just nobody listening. Yeah. No, I love that idea too, for sure. That's that's that, that has to be the way that makes the most sense. Um, but yeah, invasion of the body snatchers, even though it's a remake, it still feels a little bit fresh and yeah, sure. It has the fifties sci-fi. Oh, it's giant space plants. Uh, but you know, like the message that they have of, well, it, in all the trash that we eat and all the trash that we breathe, you know, like we wouldn't even notice if something else was getting into our system, which again, like you start mm-hmm. getting some of that environmentalism and just so many great realistic, like again, original ideas from, uh, from the seventies. But I want just very, very briefly to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre because i love that movie it is yeah. i i just incredible oh man toby hooper is oh god so <clears throat> i watched you it this time it, didn't you? i you rewatched it, it for the first time last year but i feel like i just watched it last month is how yeah how much that film stuck with me because it felt like i had just watched it i watched it this time with the commentary and oh. there are a few very interesting stories that you get from that commentary. One of them is like at a certain point they had been in that house and it was just getting so hot that they were all kind of losing their mind. And like uh-huh. that dinner scene where they're all just like cackling and going crazy, uh, essentially wasn't acting like <laughs> they basically were <laughs> going that crazy, but more specifically, and uh, they talk about this on the commentary. So, you know, if you just watch the commentary, you would, uh, you would hear this as well, but Gunnar Hansen is, is on one of the commentaries and he's talking about uh, Gunnar Hansen's the one that plays Leatherface. He's talking about the scene yeah. where at the dinner table, uh, they're trying to cut or he cuts her hand to like feed some of her blood to grandpa. Yeah. He really cuts her hand. Like, they had a like like tape or some sort of safety measure on a knife so that like it was supposed to have you know like the blood go down this thing onto the knife onto her hand but it wasn't working and they did however many shots of it and it wasn't working and so he said screw it and he took that protective measure off of it and literally cut her hand are you kidding me Wow. That's what he said in the, in the commentary. If he just made that story up for the sake of, uh, you know, entertainment, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But yeah, in the commentary, they talk about like how some of the things that happen are really happening. And um, like at the end when he's swinging the no, like when he has the chainsaw, but he falls down and it hits his leg. He just mm-hmm. had a metal plate covering his leg. And when it hit, he thought that like the chainsaw was actually going through his leg because they were using a live chainsaw, not with dulled blades. Like they were using 
a real chainsaw and so like some of the cinematography at the end like when the camera's going in and coming back out as he's doing his dance at the end that's because the cameraman is trying to get out of his way so that he doesn't get killed I love it when this is like one of the things about filmmaking that's so fascinating is that like perfect movies in many and basically every situation are kind of perfect by accident yep um and I just I love that and too, and I, I love like these these like independent movies from this time. I love how dangerous like Texas Chainsaw is a movie that when you watch it, it feels dangerous. <laughs> like you really to hear you tell those stories, it's like it's kind of surprising, but also not really because it's like these are just a bunch of people who went into their backyard in Texas essentially and and made a movie. Like they're yep. just like yeah, we're just gonna make a movie and pretty much. I love those. I mean, it's kind of like Evil Dead too. Evil Dead is another one of those movies that just feels dangerous. Like it's a bunch of people who don't know what the hell they're doing, doing the best they can, and that's why these movies are so innovative because they have to figure out ways to do something without the kind of like uh, crutch of a budget, uh, you know. And so yeah. they have to a little get their hands dirty a little bit. I, I just love that, and I think that's why Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. A masterpiece. Well, and uh, e- even the though the accident. movie, obviously very dark, obviously a <laughs> horror movie, like there was the intention for it to be a very dark satirical comedy. Like there is intentional humor in that movie. But yeah, to me, thought of it as a comedy, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, not like a laugh out loud comedy, but again, like a satirical, like there's some real life humor in that. Uh, and, and again, like it works because of that realism. But one of my favorite scenes from the movie, which the first time, you know, last year when I was watching it, that it finally hit me like, oh, yeah, this there is absolutely a comedy here when Leatherface is chasing that girl and uh, like she's running and he runs past her off screen and then doubles back and starts running towards her. Yeah. Again, with some of the unintentional that wasn't necessarily on purpose, it's because earlier as he was chasing her, he slipped and like uh, it's when he was running through the woods, he slipped, the chainsaw went up into the air. He didn't know where it was. And so like he just rolled away and it landed next to his face. Jesus. And so, like, he was just trying to not die. So when he's chasing her and you see him run past where she turns and then go back, it's because he's trying to not slip and die. He's trying not to die. Uh, Which, again, I I love it. And just, oh, man, if you can watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the commentary on, uh, (laughs) specifically the one that has Toby Hooper and uh, Gunnar Hansen and... I, I think maybe the screenwriters on it. I forget who else is there. And watch it. It it is just as enjoyable of an experience listening to them talk about the movie as it is watching the movie. I, I need to rewatch it. I haven't seen it in seven or eight years. I think it's like 2012. Last time I saw it. Um, so yeah, I really need to rewatch it. It's been a while. It's it's great. Um, the there, there were also kung fu movies. I didn't watch nearly as many as I wanted to we'll do more kung fu coverage later we might bring mm-hmm. back our kung fu brewery eventually um but th- there's the explosion of kung fu movies in the 70s there's a handful of them in the 60s but like as i was going through all of my movies to uh, 
like start organizing to actually break them apart and find movies from each of the decades. There were two or three maybe from the sixties that I found and like 70 or 80 from the seventies. So tons of Kung Fu in the seventies that I didn't get around to watching enough of. Let's see. We also got, I watched Suspiria, which I really loved and was kind of blown away by, uh, probably won't get too much into it, but it is an arresting visual and auditory experience. Like the, the cinematography, the colors, the soundtrack by Goblin is insane. I will listen to that just nonstop. The, the opening scene of Suspiria is one of the most perfect pieces of cinema ever. Like one of the most perfect things ever committed to celluloid so much so that like, even though the rest of the movie is outstanding, it still feels like a lesser movie because it is not as good as the opening scene of that movie, which is just like a perfect storm of incredible imagery and color and nightmarish, like in- incredible nightmare logic, like the- where the eyes open up in the dark is one of the most startling things I've ever seen ever. Uh, and yeah, that goblin music. I, like I watched this movie with headphones, and I'm so glad I did because it just overwhelms you. It is like a sensory overload. Um, it's it, Suspiria is so incredible. Uh, yeah, the, and genuinely scary. The first time I saw it was in 4K at Knoxville Horror Film Fest a few years ago. Yeah. And man, man I great, that incredible. So so glad i was able to see that on the big screen in 4k it is such a beautiful movie and uh, it was inspired by like the the look of the movie was inspired by snow white and the seven dwarves like they wanted it i believe it be a live action cartoon to a certain extent it also one thing i love about these italian movies is the fact that they didn't record sound and so everything is dubbed which for a movie like suspiria makes it even more like eerie and kind of off kilter the fact that like their voices don't match their lips perfectly and that the their the emotion in their voice does not always match the emotion that they're giving in their physical performance and it's just so it's it's, it's a movie that is always feels off and always leaves you just kind of unsettled and not really knowing what to expect next it's it's really brilliant um Oh, we also watched Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, yes, we that. did. Uh, man, what? Now, what are some of your thoughts on that one? Especially, uh, I, I do have, um, that does remind me of some of the broader thoughts that if we have time, I want to make sure to address. But uh, yeah, what are some of your thoughts on Assault on Precinct well, 13? Um, my, my tongue's falling apart. 13, first of all, does not take place on at a Precinct 13. Um, <laughs> it's like Precinct 6 or something. I can't remember what they say in the movie, but it is not Precinct 13, which is bizarre. I guess they just thought the title was better. Um, Pre- Assault on Precinct 13, though, is a movie that opens with um, the police brutally murdering a group of uh, black men, um, and then the commissioner kind of shows up on the radio... And it's like, oh, yeah, what the police had to do was it was a horrible thing. But imagine what would have happened if those people who uh, stole these automatic weapons got organized. Imagine the damage they could do. So, you know, I, I imagine. To- yeah. Imagine if the guns got into the wrong hands, like how yeah, bad that it, would be. It was a terrible thing the police had to do. But, uh, you know, it'd be a lot worse if they didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah. And then you also get like a few minutes later, you get a line in the movie that 
uh, what is it like? Uh, there are no more heroes, just men who give orders or men who take oh, orders. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I texted you about that. Orders. Yeah, that line yeah. was. There are no heroes anymore, Bishop. Only men who follow orders. Yeah. Uh. So when when what? I was watching Assault on Precinct Thirteen and a first watch for me because yet again another blind spot. Um, yeah, for a while at the beginning of the movie, I was like. Okay, I, I love John Carpenter. I know that he, like, I know that he might not necessarily always mean to have like deep social, sociopolitical commentaries in the movies that he makes, but yet they still exist. And like whether or not that was his intention, they are inescapable in the films that he creates. They think, have meaning. So when I, I was watching on this one, and doesn't talk about it, like, like does it on he, purpose, but then downplays it. I buy that. Exactly, yeah. Like, he, he, he's a very deep person who understands exactly what he's doing and why, but he doesn't want to be bothered with it because he just wants to play video games and make music. I absolutely <laughs> believe that. Or the audience to figure it out on their own or, you know, draw their own meaning from it. But, but absolutely also, agree. You uh, probably <clears throat> more correct. <laughs> so when I was watching this, um, for the first, you know, bit of the movie, I was like, are the cops the bad guys? Because it kind of is presenting that as, yeah, okay, maybe some of the people on the streets doing things aren't doing things great, but maybe the people on the streets are justified because of the bad cops. And and again, in context of some of the other 70s movies that I watched, that seems like a thing that Carpenter would have done to like just completely flip the, the commentary around to where it's like, yeah, the reason that we need vigilantes is because of the broken police system, but vigilantes are still bad because they're not actually fixing the system. And that seems like a thing that would have been going on until the ice cream scene. And then I was like, oh, yeah, Ooh, no, never mind that. Yep. At, at that, that point, I was just like, rough. okay, that's that's very clear what's going on then. And th- to me, to me, Assault on Precinct 13 is what Charles Bronson thinks that Death Wish is in terms <laughs> of violence begets violence. Yeah. Because the entire movie is violence begets violence. And yeah, it's it's a great it movie. Kind of, it feels kind of like uh, John Carpenter's Night of the Living Dead. Like, it really feels like a zombie movie. Um, the way that there's just like this onslaught of of this gang just constantly going in into this um, police precinct to attack. It, it's crazy too because it's like I assumed that because the movie begins or toward the beginning you see prisoners being transported to another prison facility. Um, and I assumed that the assault was, oh, we're going to break these prisoners out of jail. But it ends up being a lot more kind of personally motivated than that. The prisoners are stopping at this precinct because the one one inmate has COVID. Um, Pretty much. And <laughs> so they have to stop because he's sick. And then uh, it's a precinct that is like being moved to a different area. So it's kind of out of commission. But they have uh, Austin Stoker, uh, this um, black police officer, who is just kind of, it's his first day on the job essentially. And he's been tasked with just kind of hanging out at this place and making sure nothing bad happens. Nobody comes in and starts like messing with stuff. <laughs> Make sure no um, one comes in trying to assault the precinct. To assault the precinct. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then like the, what happens though, is that the, these, you know, thugs, I guess you could say 
kill this little girl, and then the father chases them down, realizes that he made a mistake by chasing them down and trying to exact revenge on them and shoot them, runs into this precinct well, for no, help. He, he does shoot them. Like, he shoots no, one yeah, of them. Does. So I, he I does get some of his that. revenge. He shoots them and then realizes, oh, shit, I shouldn't have done that, and right. runs he, away. He shoots one of them and then realizes there are more than one. They have more guns. Crap. Yeah. Crap, 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 crap. crap. And then he runs into this precinct, and that is why this just insane amount of people start attacking this this precinct. Like, I was blown away by the number of, like, not only the number of people attacking it, but by how quickly they start killing off the poli- the other police officers that are there. Um, it's It truly is brutal, and the action's great. And what I love most is that the heroes of this movie who are reluctantly defending this jail are two felons, a black police officer, and two women. Like, I love that you get a bunch of people who would never be considered the heroes in any other movie made like this at the time. Uh, And and again, we've talked about this in um, Escape from New York, but and maybe a little bit in The Thing, but some of John Carpenter's love of Westerns, like this absolutely feels like a western movie it feels oh, yeah. it's, um it's a essentially a remake of rio bravo uh at its core i'm, I'm pretty sure even Car- uh carpenter has acknowledged that like yeah this is basically me doing howard hawks <laughs> almost all of his movies are him attempting to do some kind <laughs> of movie uh to a certain extent but yeah no um it really is uh a western at its core um but yeah, also a zombie movie because man, that last that especially the very end scene in that hallway where there's just like people come like just an avalanche of bodies coming down in that hallway. Uh, yeah. So uh, so I saw VFW last year. Yeah, I think it was just I last year at Knoxville Horror Film Fest, and then again at Frightening Ass Film Fest uh, in Chattanooga, and I got I loved it like. I VFW is just an onslaught. It, it, it is a siege movie. Um, it, yeah. Uh, if, if you've, if you enjoy assault on precinct 13, like VFW is absolutely required viewing um, to the point where I can understand why some people might say, Ugh, it's just a remake. It's just the exact same movie. It's not doing anything original except for the fact that first off, that's not entirely true. Secondly, even if it were true, who cares? You know, like mm-hmm. in, in the same way that I love uh, the fifties, the fly, and I love the eighties, the fly for vastly different reasons. Even if it is just a remake and the same reason that I love the fifties blob and the eighties blob, like it's okay to have a movie that is, you know, very heavily influenced by a previous movie and still also love both of those things. But yeah, VFW is like no question. Very, very, very heavily inspired by assault on precinct 13. Um, but in a good way, like I, it, it is done in such a way that as you are watching either one, whichever one you watch first, if you watch the other, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I see the influence that this film has made. And again, for some, as much as I love John Carpenter, to watch a movie 
that is very clearly influenced by Carpenter, especially at the hands of Joe Bagos. Like I, I think that he did just such a great job and it, it, it's a beautifully grimy movie and, and, and I love it. Um, I, I gotta see that one. That's the one I like. I really do. I did watch, um, uh, shit. It's too late for me to think of the name of the other movie that he made last year. Um, Oh God, why am I drawing a blank on it too? Like I can see the image and it's, uh, my phone's almost dead. So I'm not going to look it up because I'm, I'm almost out of it. This is really um, upsetting me that I can't remember the name of it because I love that movie. Um, bless. Yes. Bless. Um, yeah, I watched that and I never got around to VFW. Uh, I need to, I need to get on that. I actually paid to watch bliss, which I almost never do. I paid to rent it. Um, bliss is a much more personal movie and uh, I got to watch both of them back to back at Knoxville and, um, yeah, bliss is a, a much more personal movie. And I think that VFW is stronger because of just how much of himself he poured into bliss. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that VFW would have happened without bliss, but both of them are just just ridiculously good indie horror movies. I love them both so much. Um, Assault on Precinct 13 is one of the few remakes of a John Carpenter movie that I think is actually enjoyable. Um, I don't know if it's a good movie. It's been forever since I've seen it, but I remember enjoying it a lot. Uh, But I also am probably, uh, I probably have a little bias there because I uh, have a huge man crush on uh, Ethan Hawke. So uh, I've not seen that one. I think that I have it. And Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne's in it, and he's he's great. Uh, so yeah, let's see here, Nathan. Are there any other seventies movies that we need to highlight? Ah, uh, there, there are so no, many that I like, want to talk about. Um, were there any like glaring oversights? Like the, any huge, like just completely. Like I can't believe you've never seen this movie. Kind of movies that uh, that you. You watch any all-time classics, greatest movies ever made that you might have caught up on? Fine, fine. I I, I get what you're trying to do. So let's talk about Cleopatra Jones starring Tamara Dobson. (laughs) This movie is so good. And again, so relevant. Um, it's, It's kind of silly just with some of the premise, but at the same time, uh, it, it's a really solid movie that has a lot of great uh, racial and political commentary and uh, like th- there's a, a dirty cop and they raid essentially like a halfway house and they plant drugs on one of the guys because the drug lord who is just like this old overweight white woman I think her name is Mama I think uh, like she's the drug kingpin in in town and so like you know it it's it is just a really really solid movie and um there's if 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 you've never seen any of um if you've never seen cleopatra jones you need to watch it 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 again was a very very pleasant surprise um lots of things happen in that one and, and eventually we'll do a full episode on it but um yeah, I'm I'm running out of steam to go into too yeah. much more depth about Cleopatra Jones. I'm with you. I'm trying to think if I, I watched like uh, The Sting, which is just one of the most entertaining movies ever made. It is so 
brilliant in the way that it is a con movie that is constantly conning the audience in the best way possible. Um, so, so much fun. It's, uh, it's so good. We do need to talk about, because we are running low on time, we need to talk about the contribution that George Lucas made to cinema in the 70s and <laughs> how he gave us just one of the most perfect movies. Um, American with, Graffiti? Yep. American <laughs> Graffiti. I was going to make Thank a joke about I was going to make a joke about Harrison Ford driving around um, with oh, a, a very uh, uh, luxurious head of hair next to him. Um, but, yeah. but yeah. Okay, Nathan. Um, why don't we Why don't we do this over again? <laughs> no, no. It's it's too it's too late now. Thunder. I've 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 lost my joke. Uh, yeah, American Graffiti. Such a good movie. I love it. I especially love the better version of it called The Last Picture Show. Um, I especially love <laughs> Shut Up. American Graffiti is a great movie. Back when George Lucas was still a great director, and it is just. It is a solid movie beginning to end and it is the like it, it is the prototype for all of the sort of like 80s and 90s movies that we get of just like following a bunch of high school kids on on their last night of high school or on their night before prom or like we wouldn't have maybe we would have uh but for the sake of like you know hyperbole or, we wouldn't have John Hughes films were it not for American Graffiti. Again, exaggerating, probably, but like the, those small, not really small set, but the uh, small window of time movies, ensemble-ish cast, you know, like I, I don't think that we would have had Breakfast Club without American Graffiti. I don't think that we would have had Pretty in Pink. I don't think that... And again, maybe we would have. We, we probably would have. But I, I hear what you're saying. That I am. Um, I, I, I my uh, dumb joke aside. I actually legitimately adore American Graffiti. I think it is just a perfect. I'm such a sucker for those like coming of age movies, and especially ones that take place like all in one night. Um, you know, something like Dazed and Confused or something. And American Graffiti is definitely the precursor to that. And it is just so much fun. And so good. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I can't think of any like specific examples from the movie. Other than I love all the Wolfman Jack stuff. Um, and yeah, American Graffiti is just phenomenal. It's 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 a perfect kind of hangout movie um, if you want to just sit around and get lost in, in nostalgia for a time that again I didn't actually live in. But uh, but you know but those still, characters. Yeah, right. It does f- still feel universal. Yeah. Um, Anyone who ever like you know grew up, <laughs> or even if you didn't grow up, I think you can watch that movie and find some part of yourself in it. It's 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 a beautiful, lovely movie. Yeah, every single character that you know, every single main character, and some of the side characters, like you know who they are, whether or not you know everything about them, you have a very strong sense of what that person is like, and and you care about them, and and there's interesting stories, and they're overlapping stories, and you're not just following one main character. Like honestly, I don't know who the main character is supposed to be. Maybe Richard Dreyfus, but he's not the one that you stay with the most time. Maybe yeah. Ron Howard, but he's also a dick. Like 
I <laughs> rewatching it. He is a terrible person in this movie. I had forgotten how horrible he is. He's basically saying to his girlfriend, Hey, we need to break up because, uh, you know, when we go off to college, like we need other experiences to find out whether or not we truly love each other. And he's just being yeah, a dick yeah. to her the entire time. And it's just like, man, if I was that girl's dad, I, I would, I would just be like, dump him. He's a loser. Go find someone who's not an ass. Uh, but yeah, like you, you care about these characters and the, the ones that start out the movie, like, Oh, they're going to be the bad boys. Like there's a lot of genuine heart. And, and again, Ron Howard, who was Opie, like you're watching him and just like, Oh, sweet little Ron Howard is being a terrible person. That yeah. He's definitely playing off. with his, his Opie image. And I, I, I honestly do not know anything bad to say about this movie uh, jess and i watched it together and she was just as captivated the first time as i was you know however many times i've seen it at this point the one thing that i had forgotten about and i, I had forgotten about it because the rest of the movie is so perfect but the end of the movie has that like text epilogue where it tells you this is what happened oh, to the yeah. characters yeah. and it's so jarring because on some of them, it makes sense to know that this one became a senator, to know that this one became this thing. But then one of the other characters is just like, yeah, he died. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, what? Oh, uh, that's so funny. It, it ah, yeah. I, I have the sequel. I still haven't seen it. I meant to watch it before we did this episode, but I had too many other movies that I also tried to watch. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be fine with one American Graffiti under my belt. Um but I, I really want to watch the sequel. I know that it's not as good, but from some of the things that I've read about it, uh, because it goes much darker, like actually following some of them into Vietnam, you can't watch it as the same movie. Like it's almost yeah. it, it, the, the sense that I get from, again, some of the things that I read about it, it almost feels like American graffiti. meets deer hunter in, um, just in terms of where some of it goes and well it came out like the year after deer hunter i think so i wonder if they're oh, really did it is deer hunter I, from the 70s maybe it's from, maybe it's, no way i think i'm i'm sorry no yeah it's 1978 yeah okay i was right when, when did deer hunter come out the deer hunter came out in 1978 and then more american graffiti came out in 79 so yeah that that would make sense yeah. Which, I mean, it would oh, be a little too close. I don't know. If, I mean, I guess it depends on how long the production is. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. It seems like that could very be easily be an influence on it. De- Deer Hunter, I didn't rewatch it for this time. but I've never seen it, actually. It It is a great movie. It is, at times, a very slow movie. Um, the ending of the movie carries so much weight that after you've seen it, you're going to think back on the movie thinking that it was a much more tense and dramatic movie than it actually was. Mm -hmm. But because of the character development and because of knowing these characters, caring about them, understanding what's happening and relating to them, when things happen at the end, you feel that weight. And it's, it's still a rough watch for me. It's great. And I love it. But every time that I've rewatched it, it's just like, man, why am I doing this to myself? Oh, right, because it's great cinema. You know, The Deer Hunter is a movie that stars um, a man, well, not stars, but one of the one of the people who are in the film is um, a great character actor by the name of John Cazale, 
who was only in five movies in his life, and all five of those movies were nominated for Best Picture. Um, he should be in the next Kaoma movie then. Well, he's dead. Uh, that's why he was only in five. Doesn't movies. matter. Um, he is this. He is uh, in one of my all-time favorite movies, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, he also plays Fredo Corleone in The Godfather. Uh, Nathan, can what? we not around The Godfather anymore? I'm not even going to make any jokes. I just I need to know how you <laughs> just as briefly as you can. Just tell me. We can end on this. Just give it to me. I need to know how you feel about right. Godfather. So my favorite thing about The Godfather is when uh, they're taking that shipment of Coors Light back across state lines <laughs> because it's it's just such a silly plot and I don't know why they refer to hang up. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you call it on, on a video call. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I don't know why they refer to Burt Reynolds as the Godfather, but I mean, maybe it's his mustache. Maybe, maybe that was the name of his car. Godfather and the Bandit. God, Smokey and the Godfather. Smokey and the Godfather. <laughs> I like what that movie is called. <sighs> but seriously. We we okay. Joking aside, we seriously do need to talk about smoking the bandit because it's it's a I, good I didn't movie. Watch it. I'm so mad. I was go- it was one that I it's, literally watched, and then I ended up watching something else. I don't remember what it was. It so earlier when I said there weren't that many like happy movies that I watched. Uh, maybe there's some realistic stuff in in Smoke at the Bandit, but it is just a pleasant movie. There's again maybe a few things that we can get into a deeper discussion about, but it's just it's just fun. Burt Reynolds driving real fast. It's uh, doing some sick stunts. It, I I yes, I had never seen it before. I hate to admit that, but whatever. I understand the love for this movie. I also understand why some people who love this movie too much, maybe you know they should see other movies um but yeah i i get it like it's not even a i had to be convinced like a few minutes into it it's just like yep burt reynolds is charming and us all get out in this movie and uh it's just it's just fun it's it's a real fun movie all right seriously the godfather (laughs) okay i didn't watch it don't lie to me. <laughs> I know you watched it. Y- yes, you know that I watched it because you stalked me I, on. I stalked you on Letterbox. Yes. What if I was lying on Letterboxed? What if it that was all be, a big ruse? That would be um, equivalent to blasphemy. So. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. So yes, this movie about a mob boss uh, and the. The fellow mobsters dumping their shipment at the first sign of Imperial fighters. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Star Wars. Man, Star Wars is so good when you rewatch it with your kids and they're watching it for the first time. It's kind of like watching the movie again for the first time yourself. Um, It is is pure magic. 
just to see how much that movie still captivates, like how it is just universe, almost universally captivating, at least for little boys. I don't know about anyone else, but my kids were just so blown away by this movie from beginning to end, and they are now obsessed with Star Wars, and it is just so sweet. Um, and then you're going to completely destroy their view of humanity and the world when they start watching some of the other movies. <laughs> Listen, I, okay, I have to tell you this really quick. We've already started watching The Phantom Menace, and we got about 15 minutes, because we've, we've finished the original trilogy. We got about 15 minutes into The Phantom Menace, and Owen goes, <laughs> Owen, my seven-year-old, says, Daddy, when is this boring part going to be over? <laughs> and I was like, uh, when the credits roll? <laughs> and you're uh, like, um, oh, when we hit episode seven? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I am 100% a, an episode three apologist with no shame. Episode three, Revenge of the Sith, is the f- sixth, fifth? fifth best Star Wars movie maybe what, um, we'll, we'll get into this Return of the Jedi we will get this we'll get to this when we actually do our Star Wars episodes and when we do eventually get around to that uh, I'm hoping to have a few other people also be on the podcast and have like a, a large group discussion um, like really arguing about Star Wars because that's the way that it should be done it's the way that a lot of movies should be done, but especially with that's, Star Wars. That's why, that's why Star Wars exists. Yes, it is to have six of your friends just angrily, very lovingly swearing at each other about why Episode One is not the worst Star Wars. That is unequivocal, unequivocally, unequivocally. I don't know how you say that word. False. No, uh, it is definitely the worst here, Star Wars movie. Here's the thing. Episode Three is only good as a bridge to the original trilogy. Like episode three is only good within the context of watching three, four, five. I mean, that's true of most of the star Wars movies, but, uh, no, a lot of them are good on their own episode three. It's tying together all of those loose ends from the original trilogy, trying to bridge or sorry, from the, that's what I think. That's, those th- those things are the things that I like most about episode three. The way that they try to like fill in the you know retroactively go back and fill in the gaps. I think that's where it's what it's worst about it. I think that is one of the many things that is tragedy. bad about it. I I think that it has really 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 cool um, lightsaber fights, and I think that the lightsaber duel at the end between uh anakin and obi-wan is you know a a great fight scene and it goes on for what like 20 minutes like it's it's great so awesome it is some of the best lightsaber uh work in all of the star wars movies it's it's great that's one of the only good things about the movie the rest of the movie is too rushed you don't get a sense of the time of how Anakin is turning to the dark side as padme is being pregnant like it feels like it takes place over about maybe a month it's just the timing is all thrown off the pacing is terrible it there's there's too much about it that doesn't carry enough weight to get me to really care and feel like i'm going down that path to the dark side with anakin it's not there two is just terrible for all number of reasons uh episode one only takes a few minor changes to make it not terrible get rid of Uh, Get rid of Jar Jar. 
place it on um place it on Alderaan rather than on Naboo. Um I feel like if you had told me this before I started rewatching it, I might agree with you, but I've been re I haven't even finished it yet with the boys, but I started rewatching it and I was like, this movie is even worse than I remember. Oh, rewatching I'm, it, it is utterly groanable. I've, I've been a prequel, like a general prequel apologist because I kind of like episode I mean, I don't like episode two, but there are many things there are certain things about it that I really like. No. Um No, two might be the worst. <laughs> Episode no, one it's, is it's way better than episode one. Episode one is utterly groanable. The acting in all of the prequels falls a little flat and uh, get rid of Jar Jar and all of just the wildly overt racism of the trade Federation and the Gungans like, but, but in general, it's not the worst movie. It, it's, it's not. It's definitely the worst one of the series. Uh, no, be ever, but no, you're you're wrong. Um, so by seriously. the way, if we, do, if we do a Star Wars thing, I just have to mention uh, really quick that if we do a Star Wars thing, we have to get Graham on our episode one episode because he loves the Phantom Menace. Oh yeah, uh, it it essentially would be uh, like a screen drafts redo where we're not necessarily trying to order them; we're just arguing about why everyone else is wrong. So. Yeah, basically, it would be a screen drafts redo. Um, man, that's such a great podcast. I love listening to them. All right. Anyways, it's my favorite. The Godfather. The Godfather is great. It, it's it's a great movie. I mean, what, what do you expect me to say about it? It is it is a fantastic movie. Um, it is one of the few movies and like the start of something that you start seeing a lot more moving forward where you don't get all of the credits at the beginning. Like rewatching movies, as many movies as I've been watching lately, uh, especially all of these older movies, uh, all packed together so much. It's like, why are they telling me all of the credits? Like, I do not care who the grip was in the intro credits. <laughs> and it, it, so many old movies, like they give you everything about it, and then you get to the end, and maybe they tell it again, or maybe you just get the end. But the yeah. Godfather, you get, you know, the Godfather. And like straight into the movie. That's it. And you start seeing that a little bit more as, as they move forward. But um, yeah, to me, that was, again, highlighting some of that realism of, all right, let's not focus on who all made it. Let's just dive straight into the story. Yeah. Um, it's not it's so good. There, if we were doing a full episode and I was talking about prior information and how it shaped my expectations, I didn't realize that the wedding scene at the beginning took as long as it did. I didn't realize how much of the movie was. It's like a good 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit longer. And it's important because that is setting up the rest of the movie. But like, I I didn't realize how much of the movie was that. I didn't Mm -hmm. realize that the horse in the bed or the horse head in the bed was as minor of a part as what it was. And like, so all of it, it's just my perception of the movie was a little bit skewed maybe just because again it's it, it is in so much of just the lexicon of, of just cinematic history and pop culture that like mm. of course you know all of the big things of course you know leave the gun take the cannoli of course you know monday wednesday thursday tuesday like you you know yeah. these things without realizing like oh that's not that in 
important or like that was just like kind of a bit scene or it was just essentially the the equivalent of what a meme is today like it was just one of the memeable moments yeah and i i I don't know i mean eventually we'll go through and we'll do a a full review of it and like really dive into it but it's it's a great movie like watching it just i i got it um you know there are other movies other iconic movies that I feel like have been overhyped. And so when you watch them, it's like, yeah, fine. They're great. But eh. Godfather, yeah. it was just like, that's, it's, it's a great movie. It's, I, it's like, it's just, it's a, it's fucking awesome. Like you watch yeah. it and it's like, Oh, uh, cause you, you, when you whenever you were talking about it, uh, beforehand, you were like, it's probably just going to be like, you know, one of those, you know, kind of boring sort of stuffy movies that I'm not wrong. Loves. And then, but, and I told you, I was like, I don't think that you'll feel that way. The Godfather is a movie that really moves and has like a surprising amount of action and shootouts and stuff in it for a movie that is considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, Some of me saying that was just trying to give you shit. I mean, yeah, I figured, but uh, it's, it's, I, the Godfather is one of those movies, though. I think that that's the kind of movie that before you've seen it, that's what you expect it to be. And I don't know if you you might still feel that way to a certain extent. But that's the when I watched it for the first time, I was like, oh, no, this is not a stuffy period movie at all. This is a almost an action movie at times. I mean, well, if, if anything, great character drama. So when I was saying some of the like, eh, it's probably just going to be all stuffy. I I think. And again, I'm very tired at this point, so I, I might be yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, I don't mean to get into it too much. But no, but like I, I feel like when I was saying that, I was saying it more as a I hope that it's not. You know, right, like yeah. Citizen Kane is a great movie. It is, you know, it, it's changed so much in cinema. Like, of course, all of the great things that are said about Citizen Kane, of course, they're correct. But also watching it, like if uh, anyone wants to know my thoughts on citizen Kane, go back and listen to our, when was that one made thirties, forties, forties, 1941, I believe. Yeah. Go back and listen to our forties episode. We spend a fair amount of time talking about citizen Kane, but the short version of it is as I was watching it, I didn't, I, I didn't have the same immediate response as I was watching as all of the history of cinema has said about it. In our discussion, yes, a lot more of it was coming out and realizing like, yeah, okay, fine. Maybe it is one of the greatest movies ever made. Fine. Whatever. Fine. <laughs> but watching it, is there's that little bit of just like, it's it's great, but I mean, like the best, really? In, in all of cinema, this is the movie that keeps coming out on top? Really? I don't... Are we sure? Can we get a recount? Like that was kind of my immediate response as I was watching Citizen Kane. Yes, it's great, but really the best question mark. So I, I was more fearful of that happening with Godfather. I did not want to watch Godfather and for it to just be like, "Eh, it's fine, I guess like, yeah, I can see why people love it. And, and so I think that was more the, um, the intention behind my comments was I don't want to be disappointed. I don't right. want to get to the end of Godfather and think, eh, it was okay. And, and, and it was great. Like, yeah, maybe parts of it are boring, maybe, but 
the, they, they are very captivating characters. And even though there are main characters, you are following bad guys the entire movie. And so like, even the ones that you're quote unquote rooting for are bad people. And like, they're doing terrible things. And man, we could have a a whole other podcast about how, uh, the, the Italian mafia is presented as these are the heroes because they are, you know, white ish. Uh, but then any other movie that have black gangs, like, Oh, well, obviously Charles Bronson needs to kill them because they stole his groceries. Anyways, um, if you've listened yeah, to us before, you know our thoughts on this. We don't have to get too far into that. Um, yeah, I, I the 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 scene with Michael in the restaurant getting the gun, and uh, you know they're with Sterling Hayden, and I think William Holden is is the other actor in the scene. Um, what a just perfect, brilliant, one of the greatest ever scenes in movie history. I feel like it's such a great. Mostly because it's just such a great character moment because Michael has been able to stay out of the family business for so long. And then that's ultimately like both his downfall and his ascendancy. Um, it's, I, I just love it. I think it's brilliant from beginning to end. It's one of those movies that really does live up to its stature as one of the greatest movies ever made. I'm so glad you finally watched it. Oh, yeah. I, and I completely agree. And I had no like opposition to watching it. I've had it for decades. So just man, I got too many movies to watch. I just don't have time to watch all of them. And, and because it's one of those movies that is so iconic, like there was always that little bit of, I'm fine to not watch it right now because I know that it's great. Yeah. You know, like, um, it's not going to be like some great discovery that you're going to go out and sing to the world. Like, Oh, you guys got to check out this movie. It's called the Godfather. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, I finally watched the Godfather and it is as awesome as people say that it is. And yep, that's a truth fact. And like, <laughs> like I, I just, I probably do have a lot more to say about it, but I can't remember what those things are right now. And, uh, I, I, I do feel like, um, talking about the entire Godfather, the Godfather trilogy is something that we eventually need to do. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's been covered by plenty of people. Fine. Whatever. We are going to be more people also talking about it at some point. <laughs> um, I got, I just, I don't. It's great. It's a solid movie. I don't. Again, what do you want me to say about it? <laughs> uh, no, I was just, I was just curious. I, I just want to make sure. I, I need to make sure. Yes, it is. It is a fantastic movie. Mind. So, very quickly, before we both fall asleep, um, as we've been talking about some of these movies, and as we've been talking about, like especially the vigilanteism, and uh, I don't think that we. I know that we didn't talk about it in depth. I think that we even forgot to mention, but even like Mad Max, another great vigilante movie that uh, the original Mad Max is so good. And uh, I, I want us to talk about this at some point because you do not think that it is as good as it is. And you are wrong. It is a yeah, great I didn't really movie. Like it the first Ooh, time I watched you're, it, you're wrong. That movie is well, great. I also, I think it was a mismanagement of expectations because it's yes. one of those you read the synopsis and it's like after his wife and blah, blah, blah and daughter or whatever are killed, Max goes onto the road for revenge or whatever. And it's like, that's literally the last five minutes of the movie. Like, yeah, but you only care about that because the rest of the movie leading up to it. 
And sure, Mel Gibson is a crazy person and whatever, like that definitely does sort of taint the movie a little bit. And it is a little bit harder to watch it now in light of numerous things that he has said. I don't even know if I considered that at all when I watched it. It's just I I went into it expecting a totally different movie than what I got. Um, Well, Mel Mel Gibson has been in a lot of great movies and I, I like most of the movies that he's been in and I really enjoy watching him as an actor, but he has said so many absolutely terrible things that it is difficult to watch him at times. It's easier to watch him when he's a lot younger because that's further removed from the horrible things that he has said and done. He still had his Australian accent. Right. But there's still that little bit of just like, ah, anytime that I talk about how, great mad maxes and how much i love the original movie i feel like there always has to be that little bit of caveat of yes and of course here is this dark stain on the movie now because of whatever anyways um in uh, i'm dropping things and i hope that that did not just unplug that thing okay cool the, the the recorder just fell and if it had been turned off we would have lost three plus hours of a podcast so Nathan, why is our why is our podcast so fragile? Are you serious? Like you, <laughs> we need to stop before we tempt fate. This podcast is oh the little God. old lady in the eighties commercial that if she falls, she can't get up. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry, I'm just amazed that like one, one false move and all of, and every bit of this is gone. My podcast needs life alert. One of the issues that we've mentioned a lot, so we don't need to go into too much more depth about this. And we've even talked about this in previous episodes when we've talked about uh, just like horror movies or like when I said, as my son gets older, I'm probably going to be more okay with him watching horror movies than movies like James Bond because of the fact that James Bond, as much as I love those movies and grew up on them, they glorify violence and they glorify, hey, go be like horrible women and shoot people and you'll get the hot ladies. And like those movies absolutely glorify those things, whereas horror movies show the ugliness and show this is why violence is bad. We've talked about that plenty, plenty, plenty of times. However, I don't feel like we can uh, like fully end this episode without directly talking about the fact that because of those some of the systemic issues that still exist today in terms of like the the quote unquote vigilante cop, you know, the cop that takes things into their own hands and says, oh, Mm -hmm. well, this person did this minor infraction. So obviously it makes sense to shoot them in the back as they're running away. And, you know, like part of the reason that there is so much public outcry uh, about the systemic racism of, yeah, even if a black person did commit a crime, that doesn't mean that they deserved to die for that crime. Yeah. I, I feel like so much of the current state of things is kind of the result of some of these like vigilante seventies movies where the only way that the good guy wins is to buck the system. The only way that the cop gets the the bad guy is not when he follows the rules, but when he stops doing what a good cop does. And Oh yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that 
the 70s culture, I mean, maybe not in the 70s culture, like, there's definitely a lot of that in the 80s as well. Uh, I, I think it stems, I mean, obviously there's some political motivations behind that, but the culture reflects that. And, you know, so many of these people who go out and, you know, they'll do that thing where it's like, oh, yeah, if a rider comes around here, they better be ready for my shotgun or whatever nonsense stuff they spout. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is the kind of guy who grew up idolizing people like Dirty Harry and uh, Ronald Reagan. <clears throat> yeah, and like uh, Dirty Harry is a great movie, and watching it, like, I can understand why you root for Clint Eastwood, but at the same time, it's like, but that's a movie, you know? Like, you people cannot treat reality the same way that they do in in the movie world and man we could again could do like a whole other episode on just the the psychology of cinema and um the impact that cinema actually has on people and that just reminds me that there is one other thing that we have to mention in just a second we cannot end this episode without talking about this because it directly relates to this i know you're Uh tired bear with it We, we have to get through this um and, 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 you know, like, I don't think that movies are to blame, but I do think that there needs to be more of that discussion surrounding movies. Like, even recently with um, HBO putting the, uh, the not, a, not a warning, but the disclaimer at the disclaimer. start. Yeah, the disclaimer at the start of Blazing Saddles. Who watches Blazing Saddles and does not realize that that is satire making fun of racism and pointing out why it's so bad? Lots of people, sadly, <laughs> watch Blazing Saddles and do not realize that Mel Brooks is making fun of something. And and so, of course, there needs to be a disclaimer because, sadly, people don't get it. And and the same thing with movies like Dirty Harry, where it's like, yeah, this is bad and maybe can like start some of the conversation of how there needs to be police reform in terms of... Ah, a, a bad guy, a like obvious bad guy who has been killing people was let yeah. go because of a technicality. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that cops can just go and do whatever they want. And it's just, I, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of that, like again, Mad Max, uh, um, Death Wish, Dirty Harry, just all of these movies of the Taxi Driver, following the this vigilante. I, I think that it's had an impact, if, oh, if not I, directly, I at at very least on society. Um, at, at some point, maybe during like our 90s episode, I'll talk about, if I remember, uh, like some of that progression of the rogue cop within the police system in terms of uh, like you have the very we must follow the rules police force and so you have to have the rogue cop that goes rogue to actually get the bad guy and then like you have the police systems that the rogue cop is the one doing bad things and so like the uh like they're going too far and obviously going too far but then you have like the police system where the quote-unquote rogue cop is the one who's following orders because the entire system is so broken yeah like uh i'm thinking of movies like training day where doing the right thing is going rogue and and i think that again we could do an entire series on just the uh the character development of how rogue cops and police are portrayed in cinema if we were actually get around to it it would come up a lot in the 80s too because you have things like uh to 
quote to have another Mel Gibson movie in there, Lethal Weapon or yeah. Beverly Cop or um, Forty Eight Hour. I mean, oh, there there's so many police movies from the '80s that are these big action extravagances, and the only way to really make that kind of movie is to have a cop who is going outside the law or above, you know. But like you said, bucking back against the system, whether um, whether justified or not. Yeah. And the the last thing that I have to say about this, and we'll wrap up with this, is um, again the impact that watching sometimes violent movies has on the way that people then act out in society. Um, we we can't get through this talking about all of the video films without talking about Clockwork Orange, because this oh, month, yeah, you watched that video films a lot. I did. It's a great movie. Holy crap! Yet another blind spot for me. Not what I was expecting. So much better than I was expecting. Yeah, uh, Clockwork Orange. I watched in high school. It's been a really long time. I remember liking it well yeah i mean i remember thinking it was a good movie but also i feel like i probably didn't get it at the time um and i was also kind of just disturbed by it so sure. I, was, I don't really like this movie um i need it's one that i probably need to revisit uh it's just one that i've never really wanted to because of how uh how dirty it makes me feel <laughs> Well, and that's that's one of the weird things about it, kind of like with Godfather, where all of those iconic scenes aren't that much of the movie. Like all of the iconic scenes that you think about. In the rain. <laughs> yes, you think about that. You think about the weird outfits that they wore, like with the cod pieces on the outside and this little bowler cap. And you think about the scenes with the eyes pried open. Like Ludovico technique. Those are the scenes that you think of and that is not the majority of the movie. Th- those are important parts, yeah. but it's like, again, just the way, uh, again, if we we're doing a full episode, my prior information about Clockwork Orange would have been, oh, it is, you know, like horribly transgressive and the entire thing is ultra violent. And because that's part of the movie it is going out and engaging in that ultra violence and mm-hmm. just how that's the only way to get your kicks. And then you go to a milk bar and the milk is loaded with drugs and uh, like that's what I thought the entirety of the movie was. And it's like, no, that's what starts things into action. There's mm-hmm. a little bit more of it. And then it, it, it's just, yeah. I will say is, I've only seen it one time, but I feel like I remember many parts of it very vividly. And I'm the kind of person who I normally forget movies, you know, two days after I've seen them. Uh, and, and yeah, Clockwork Orange is a movie that really stuck with me, and I feel like I can very easily conjure up images from it and different scenes and kind of remember a lot about it, um, even a, a decade removed from it. it is, uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm hot and cold on Kubrick. I'm not, like, the biggest Kubrick fan. I recognize his genius, but I also... I think I just need to go back and rewatch a few of his movies um, to really to really get them, but yeah, it's Clockwork Orange is a movie that, like, I will say is very powerful filmmaking and that I is kind of unforgettable. 
Yeah. Well, and like I am aware of the fact that, you know, like high school and early college kids, you know, who are like super into Clockwork Orange, there is that little bit of just like, ugh, scenester kids. Like I, I get that and I'm aware of that. And I think that sometimes part of the reason that people love the movie is for the wrong reason. Like I, I think that some people love Clockwork Orange for what the movie is satirizing and saying is a problem so like as the movie is saying we are going to show all of this nudity and violence and we're going to show these just dirty scenes to emphasize the fact that sometimes things are wrong and there's a lot that's messed up in society and i think that some people in, in the same way that people miswatch fight club i think that some people miswatch a clockwork orange and they watch it as yeah i want to be just like whatever the character's name is i want to be out there you know alec alex alex yeah i want to be just like alex you know i want to be uh lingon or uh leading my little uh gang of droogs and i want to be doing all this other stuff and you know i'm gonna pick up all this lingo because that's the cool thing to do when all of that is like the the biting criticism of that movie is like no this is this is what's wrong with society and if if you're glorifying this you're doing it wrong and is there a word for the language that they speak i don't know probably remember it's something kind of interesting um but but yeah that it is it is a great movie uh it's not an easy movie to watch and honestly some of the things about the movie that are not easy to watch are not the visually assaulting violent scenes. It's the fallout of some of that stuff later. And as you get more invested in Alex and more invested in his journey, and you start seeing some of the consequences of the actions earlier on. And even though there's that part of you, that's like, yeah, he deserves it because he did some terrible things. There's also that part of, but but does he deserve that? Does he deserve for it to go that far? Like, yeah, he did bad stuff, but he's also a kid. I mean, he's a teenager, I guess. Technically, yeah, right? yeah, he's young. He's supposed to be like seventeen or eighteen, I think. And yeah, there we will eventually do a full episode on that one, and it will probably be almost entirely analysis of the movie with a little bit at the beginning of yes, of course, Kubrick makes uh, visually amazing movies. Mm. Now let's dive into the analysis <laughs> might be the entire episode of it, but yeah, mm. with everything that we've talked about in this episode, we couldn't end the episode without talking about a movie that is directly relating to the impact of the things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Yeah, for sure. I'm out of words. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. Yep. yep. Or on my ass, I guess, really. <laughs> yep. Um all right. Eric, where do you want people to find you? You can find me on uh the Twitterverse at uh the Chimerican. That is T H E C H I M E R I C A N. Um you can find me on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews. You think I would get this right eventually. <laughs> it's the fact uh, that they're two different names. American views and then on uh, letterbox at Eric J A Y and you can follow me slash the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and letterboxd 
at video monster pod. Uh, you can also follow me personally on letterboxd at, uh, the gargoyle. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to keep coming back for more of our decades episodes, the next decade is going to be the eighties, obviously because the eighties happen after the seventies. Don't know when that episode will be. We'll be lucky if we post it before October. Um, <laughs> but oh, even, man, even if we are unable to finish our decades series within the uh, year time frame that we set for ourselves, uh, we'll, we'll try not to drag it on too much into 2021. Um, I, I'm, I'm having a blast with this series. I, I'm loving every episode. Yeah but we're also doing episodes that are pushing four hours. So uh, I'm surprised if anyone has stuck around this long to listen to all of this, but if you have, and if you enjoyed this, please keep coming back and catch our eighties episode, go back and check the rest of the decades. If you want to do uh, your own sort of like crash course film school from two self-proclaimed film nerds, uh, <laughs> go back and listen to our coverage of the history of cinema and keep coming back we're going to do more individual episodes we um i don't know what we've got lined up next honestly we've, we've got things we'll do more episodes we'll keep recording it it might not be as consistent as we want it to it'll keep happening and um if you do like this then uh subscribe wherever you get your podcast stitcher itunes other places that have podcasts go there subscribe like leave some leave some positive reviews and i i think that is it because i'm seriously starting to mess up some of my words so that's been <laughs> it for this episode of video monsters i'm nathan and i'm eric and remember kids uh leave the gun take the cannoli because cannolis are delicious and unless you're diabetic probably not going to kill anyone <laughs> Uh, yeah, good. <laughs> also, uh, be sure to get uh, get plenty of sleep and drink water and yes. take care of everything. And uh, find something that uh, makes you happy that you can do in a pandemic without... Watch Kaoma. Watch Kaoma. Yes, that yes. is on an endless loop. It's on Tubi um, and on Voodoo. One of those looked like significantly better. I think Trying to remember which one better. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Tubi one, one yeah. felt like a bad VHS copy of something that you recorded off of TV ten years ago and then re-recorded it like eight times. I think. Yeah. Voodoo felt a little bit better. Um, if you're able to find it on Blu-ray, do that. It, it's worth it. Um, if there's like a Shout Factory release of it, buy that because. Seriously, Kaoma is amazing. And if I remembered any of the words to any of the songs, I would be singing them right now. I was just sitting here trying to remember what they say. I just remember like the one where he's his brothers are like shooting at him and it's like or whenever well, if, if his brothers if his brothers are shooting at him, then the Kaoma is probably singing, My brothers are shooting at me. And well, I need to the, avoid the, the bullets. The one where he's like, I wanna die. I just wanna <laughs> die. <laughs> like, it's so Oh man. I have so to funny. get some sleep and I honest to God might start yeah. watching Kaoma instead. 
it'll, it will not put you to sleep. It'll keep you up for sure. <laughs> oh man. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, the '70s, great time for cinema, and a better oh, time great. for Kaoma. One of the one of the best decades uh, for Kaoma. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when you would catch that. <laughs> oh gosh. All right. I'm out. I'm going All right. Ahead. Yep. We got in this. Bye.